I am happy to report I'm healthy as a horse. I had my had my annual had my annual uh, physical today. They don't call them physicals anymore, you know. They call them a, a wellness exam. Yeah, that's because the ACA because the ACA will pay for wellness exams. Is that really true? I honest, yeah. yeah. So it's it's, uh, hmm. it's required. But the question is, how often can you go in for a wellness exam? Are you well once a year, or do you need to go in multiple times? I found this out because we had a terrible health plan last year, and uh, I went in to see the doctor, and I ske- I called and said, "I'm scheduling this as a wellness visit." And they said, "Great." And I saw the doctor, and I said, "We have a terrible insurance plan." This has to be a wellness visit. And he said, oh, I totally understand. Absolutely. Then I got a bill for like $300 because we had a terrible plan last year. And I called, you know, sent, it, it's through Kaiser, which is both the insurer and the uh, health plan provider, right? Or yep. the, the health provider. And I wrote them and said, this was a wellness visit. And they wrote back and said, well, you're responsible for any services incurred during a visit, no matter what. And I said, but – the doctor even told me it was a wellness visit. I wound up having to make a stink. I wrote letters to Kaiser. They wound up eventually assigning a fixer to me at Kaiser. And this person addressed all of my wife and my issues because we kept having issues. A nurse made my wife cry on the phone, which is rare. Hmm. My wife is very level-headed because my wife called and the nurse said, you have such a terrible health plan. It's awful. You should be ashamed of yourself for having such a plan. She's like, it's what we can afford. And I and they're like, okay, that probably shouldn't happen. It's like, yep. They're like, we're, we're going to have that nurse in for retraining. I'm like, look, I don't want to get in trouble, but really the nurse is probably frustrated also. But like, that's the state of healthcare is you have nurses yelling at people. Yep. For terrible health plans. It's great. I, I was in, uh, I, I'm, I'm knocking out all my doctor's appointments this week and next. I, I, got, I went to the eye doctor two days ago. I went to my, my uh, general practitioner today. And then next week I'm going to the dentist. So I'm, I'm doing it all. I'm taking care how, of myself. How are your eyes? Didn't you have an eye problem? Oh, I have terrible eye problems. But yeah, yeah, uh, it's a mixed bag. It's, you know, it is. <laughs> it's not Andy Bayo's terrible eye problem, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I forget That's, what the details were. But... It was just like a tiny, tiny, tiny something got embedded in his eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it wound up being this mul- like a year-long odyssey. And I think he's fine now. I believe he's oh. on the other side of it. But it's just one of those things. I have friends who their kid had a fishbone in their throat and they didn't know what was going on and no doctor could diagnose it until the kid was old enough to articulate exactly what was going on. Oh, geez. And when they could say, oh, my throat hurts right here, they were able to find it with an endoscope and take it out and then they were fine. You're like, oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah. Uh, but I did hear a, talk, a funny story. Well, funny, funny, funny to our friends in Europe and Canada and elsewhere. And, <laughs> and oh, yeah, that makes sense here in the United States is my, my ophthalmologist is at the... Uh, the Will's Eye Hospital here in Philadelphia. It's a, seriously a world-leading eye hospital. Mm. Uh, it's a hospital just for the eye. That's where I had my, my retinal surgery four oh, years that's ago. Great. That's great. Uh, but anyway, uh, their emergency room, their hospital is on the east side of, uh, oh, geez, is that 8th Street or 9th Street? I'm going to say 9th Street here in Philadelphia, the corner of 9th and Walnut. They're on the east side, but they're like at the 8th floor and up. I don't know what's on the first seven floors. But their emergency room, the Will's Eye emergency room, is on the west side of the street in an older building that used to be the entire Will's Eye hospital. Oh, interesting. And the gentleman, gentleman who goes to my eye doctor came in, and he has one good eye. Uh, he was actually in – I mean, this is it's probably a, 
HIPAA violation that she's telling me the story, but she's the type of doctor. She tells stories. Uh, he's got if you one don't good provide eye. identifying information. I think it's okay. He's got it's one. Okay to t- <laughs> he's got one good eye, and he's he was taking some chairs out of the trunk of his car, and well, the leg of the one chair poked his good eye out. <laughs> oh, Jesus, no! So he, he goes That's to the. Like- Louis Braille. It's like, do you ever believe the story that Louis Braille was playing with an awl and poked his eye out as a child? I don't believe that. Story. I don't know either. But this guy poked his eye out with the leg, oh, his good God. eye with the leg of a chair. So Jesus. he does the right thing. He goes to the Will's Eye emergency room, and uh, I'm not quite sure how what what level of in or out his good eye was at the time. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll say this so that nobody is is distressed. It, it's all good. He's he you know they got his eye back in and they did some surgery and his his good eye is still his good Jesus. eye. He's he's good. Okay. Okay. But in the meantime, he's in the emergency room and and I believe that when your eye is only partially in in the socket, they they quickly diagnose this one as you know a genuine eye emergency and they said <laughs> right. you you, you right. need surgery. Now the yeah. surgery is going to take place across the street, but in the meantime. Uh, for whatever reason, in in the emergency room, they'd already hooked him up to an IV. So he's already got the IV. They're, this is how certain they were that you're going to need surgery. We'll get you the IV now. But then he, he's a, literally across 9th Street in Center City, Philadelphia, from the hospital where he needs to have the surgery. So they can't just have him cross the street with an IV. So they put him in an ambulance just to go across the street. Oh, my God. Street. Yeah, of course. Right. $3,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah, go yeah, across yeah. the street. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> This is, I, I had uh, cancer he, over 20 years ago and I, I had chemotherapy. And at some point they're giving me some drug and they're like, uh, if you need to go to the bathroom, you need to tell us because you're a biohazard. So if you need to wheel this down the hall, we have to do like this protocol. I was like, okay, that's kind of scary, but sure. I, I think it got taken care of. I think at some point somebody talked to me, you know, talked to this insurance company and said, you cannot, oh, yeah, yeah. you cannot stick this gentleman with this bill for this. We insisted upon this, you know, he had no option, you know, we'd already, you know, and I guess, so I, you know, it was all good. His eyes. Okay. Now. And it's back, back in his head. Oh and, my God. And, but he initially got a bill for the hospital, for the ambulance, right? It was $3,000. And, and, and when I say across the street, I mean, like it just across the street, like you, you, you could kick a, kick a pebble as far as it needed to go. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. My, my in-laws have had to go to the ER recently, and they're fine, but there are things where you have to go to the ER. Like right. my, my, uh, mother-in-law broke her wrist un, you know, unintentionally. She fell over. And uh, she went late enough today. She, they're in a relatively small town nearby. We've just They've just moved closer to us, like three blocks from every hospital in Seattle, which is great. It'll help in the future. But they're like, okay, how do we get home? And they're like, no cabulances, no taxis would take them. They had to get an ambulance to take them home and it was so far away and my wife can't drive at night now and so we would have to drive a half an hour leave the kids home alone in the middle of the night and so they took an ambulance home it was the only way they could get back to their uh retirement place which is wild that's crazy yeah uh, the good news is my eyes my eyesight i have very good eyesight for a 82 year old man <laughs> that's i've got the lungs of a 70 year old and he wants them back so. well, my lung capacity uh, apparently is not very good either <laughs> Because they we're, do this, we're test. doing great. They do this test. Yeah, I don't know if they they do this where you go, oh but they gosh. they give you this the the lung capacity test. You got to yeah, take. Yeah, it's, it's like a plastic thing, sort of like spigometer, a spigo. Yeah, and you got to like bl- you got to take a deep breath, and then you blow as much air into it as you can, and then you suck as much air into it as you can. And it came up. I saw the computer it was hooked up to. It said okay or something. Yeah. you know, like this is good. But my, my you know the doctor is like. Have you ever smoked cigarettes? And I'm like, no, never. I've never smoked. She's like, are you sure? 
Yeah, I had to. I had to say it's. it's like, sp- no, I'm, I'm really serious. I'm sphygmomanometer <laughs> yeah. is the name of it. I had. Oh no, wait, that's a blood pressure gauge. I'm looking up the yeah. wrong thing. It's a spiro spiro metameter. Anyway, I had the same thing. The doctor's like, you know, this would be great if you were 70. Uh, not so good at 50. I'm like, all right, anything they can do about it? Like, well, oh, spirometry. That's a spirometer. It's much easier. Uh, yeah, well, we're, you know, we're, we're old. We're falling apart. No, but I got a Just, good checkup overall. I got good cholesterol. Good. I've got good uh, liver enzymes. Always a bit of a concern for me. Uh, everything's gonna, good. You'll get an eye lung in a few years. Yeah, Apple's I'm, focusing on healthcare. It'll all be set. Five yeah. years from now, lung transplants. I'm, I'm not a uh, – uh, oh, my God. I can't believe I'm dropping a word. What's the word when you uh, you uh, imagine you have every disease? Oh, <laughs> I can't think of Psychosomatic. No, no, but there's a, it, it's a, it's oh, a, oh, it's allophobic. No, no, no it's, no. um, oh, I can't believe we're drawing a blank on this. Not it's psychosomatic. A, it's a hypochondriac. Hypochondria. Right, right. <laughs> there's a famous Keith Richards quote where he says, there's only one disease I'm aware of that's deadly and it's hypochondria. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm not that's a hypochondriac, good. but I'm a hypochondriac like within 48 hours of a doctor's appointment. Like, <laughs> I'll go 363 days at this point and I'll feel fine and I won't worry about it. But then I'll find out I'm two days before my quote unquote wellness exam next year. And all of a sudden I'll, I'll be like, I, th- I think I'm having a heart attack. Oh, geez. <laughs> the, the flip side is my friend Tessa Miller wrote this beautiful, beautiful uh, essay slash reported piece for the New York Times a couple of days ago. You probably saw it. It's called Five Things I Wish I'd Known Before My Chronic I Illness. I saw that. I did see that. It's it's an amazing thing. She's an editor I've worked with and just a incredibly – lovely human being and she has Crohn's disease and she basically, if health insurance changed, she would die. There's a lot of people in that boat because the, uh, the, the drug she needs essentially, you know, an, an immune suppressant style drug, uh, would, would be unaffordable. Yeah. Uh, and, but she wrote this beautifully. And again, in a reported fashion about, you know, what's it like when you're never going to get well? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like she, and there, and she's been posting responses she's gotten on Instagram from people who are just so grateful that it's partly it's like how do you get other people to stop being a pain and suggesting terrible ideas to you because you've tried everything or you know they're suggesting things that just don't work or have no medical validity. Yeah. Anyways, beautiful story. Did you see the thing I linked to it a couple of weeks ago about how uh, vitamins are a racket? I think we talked. Didn't we talk about this on Twitter? I, was, I think uh, so. Yeah, I've been gradually. It's taken me over the last several years. I've gradually eliminated most vitamins from my diet that I don't consume. So my doctor because- is good, and my doctor. I, I don't sit here and tell my doctor how to be a doctor. I, 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 I've chosen her to be my doctor because I think she's a very good doctor, and and she's she's both uh, had the medical training and years of expertise, and and has been doing it. And I trust her. I'm sure she stays up on things more than than I do. But I've I've gotten on this schedule. Where my annual, I keep wanting to call it a physical, but my wellness exam. Although, if you think about it, just in terms of being a language geek, calling it a physical isn't really a good word either. I, I, you, know, I, you know, also the science shows that we shouldn't get annual checkups too. Checkup. I guess a checkup is the. But we, is the, we're not supposed uh, to get them. There's actually a good clinical. Oh, why not? Can you tell me why? Any, yeah, because it uh, uh, it's unnecessary medical spending. The interventions are typically either futile huh. or unnecessary. It winds up more tests are ordered and more money spent without any discernible improvement in outcomes. So I forget mm. what the number is, but they're like basically. I think the clinical work was you should go in when you're actually sick. Or when you have something that's inexplicable and maybe every several years. But yeah. the yearly thing is actually just 
uh, it's almost a revenue enhancer that's become so codified we expect yeah. it. Yeah. So if someone said to you, it's like with breast uh, mama, uh, mammogram, uh, mammograms, those are now seen as the, the research shows that women should not be getting them annually above a certain age. It doesn't yeah. – or uh, below a certain age because it doesn't increase the um, – outcome statistically. Now, individually, if you go in and they say, yes, you have breast cancer and it's operable, yeah. that's great. But statistically, it actually exposes women to more radiation that's necessary uh-huh. and probably increases the amount of unnecessary intervention. So you're like, oh, you know, how yeah. do you walk back from that? Anyway, but so, yeah. so, your, so your annual exam probably shouldn't be annual anyway. Yeah. Well, anyway, I've, I've long been on the schedule where it's, it's in mid-February and here on the East Coast, you know, we're in the middle of winter and I tend to, you know, stay inside. It's cold. It's dark. There's not a lot of sunlight anyway. So, you know, for years, my vitamin D has shown up yeah, as, as yeah. low. And boy, and I'll tell you what, by the way, Glenn, I, I mean, I'm not complaining. There's a lot worse things that can happen. But when you, I go in, you got to go in, I got to go in at least a week before my wellness exam and they, to get my quote blood work done. And they, they couldn't be nicer. I've been going to the same place. It's actually like physically connected to where my, my physician is and, and, uh, very nice woman. So I was there a week ago and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't like getting my blood drawn. I'm, I'm a little queasy about stuff like that. I gotta sure. say it was as painless as it could be. It really was, but I'll tell you, they take a lot of blood. <laughs> oh yeah. How many vials was it? Did you count? I, it was, it was five, five big ones and two small ones. <laughs> oh and my God. It's a lot of blood. I think, I, and I all I can think is, how, what the hell are they doing? Why can't they? How, what, did they what, what are they doing that they need more than a drop of? Why? Why isn't one vial enough for all of these tests? And you're like, and just, why was Theranos a fraud? Why couldn't they have been? Didn't you know produced an actual product? They take a lot of blood. It is funny, but they anyway, take a lot of blood. For yep. years, it's been showing up as slightly vitamin D deficient, and so I've I swore to my doctor, all right, I will take these vitamin D supplements. Uh, every day. And I remember to do it. I keep them right next to my coffee. And so I never forget to make coffee. And so my vitamins are right there. I take these vitamin D's, but the, I read this story and I, it's very, very compelling. I think that, that yes, it, it's like a correlation, not causation thing that yes, there are, you know, there, there are people with very high levels of vitamin D tend to be healthier and have a lower risk of, um, uh, all sorts of things, you know, including heart problems and all sorts of things. But the reason isn't because they're full of vitamin D. It's that they, they have vitamin D because they go outside all the time and live active <laughs> lifestyles. Yes, yes. I've, I read this too. Right. You're like, ah. Oh. So, and that makes so much sense in the world to me. And they're like, and, and this over, over fear of the sun in the United right. States is really bad. Like, yes, getting a sunburn is really bad for your skin. Tanning, getting your you know skin as dark as it can get, very bad for your skin in the long run. You can get these skin cancers. But the, even even then, the type of skin cancers that you tend to get from long term overexposure to the sun are among the most treatable cancers that you can have. It's not it's not the worst thing in the world. But we've gotten to the point where there's a lot of supposedly health conscious Americans who who literally just avoid the sun at all costs. They just don't get any sun, and that's actually very bad for you because that's where the vitamin D that's you know. That's supposedly good for you. And there's no clinical proof that taking a little tiny vitamin D pill um, instead of going out and being active in the sun actually has any of the benefits that the people who have their vitamin D from healthy outdoor lifestyles do. And And, and that article you're talking about, there was one – I think a few months before, there was more about the guy. There's like one guy who has been such a vitamin D advocate – that this doctor has overwhelmed everybody else who's like, whatever. And he it's it's actually almost entirely due to this one person's influence. 
it's not even like a drug industry thing or a, you know, a supplements thing. It's just one guy has had a mania about it and he's wrong. Yeah. You know, he's not wrong. Like he's in falsifying data, but his conclusions aren't actually well supported enough. And a kibosh should have been on this a long time ago because, uh, right. It does encourage people to take vitamin D instead of going outside. And, and yeah, that article was great about how like actually the kinds of skin cancers people get that are most, that are worst are either genetic or they're caused by non sun related reasons. Right. Yep. So most of those, so yes, you can get sunburns and yes, we have the ozone depletion and, and there are other things that are an issue, but spending, you know, 30 minutes in the sun or an hour in the sun without any sunscreen for most people is probably a really good thing yeah. depending on time of year and, yeah. Um, whatever. No, it's funny because you wonder. You're like, you're like, if the sun was that bad and pre, you know, even when yeah. the ozone layer was thicker, wouldn't everyone have died of cancer in like 1940? They'd be covered yeah. in skin cancer because yeah. people spent most people spent most of their time outdoor before offices and and even as we became an industrialized society, there are still massive amounts of time. And the historical evidence, as people live longer lives, the historical evidence isn't there that like people are just covered in skin cancer. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I linked to that, and then I got some email from from my good readers down in Australia who were in the midst of a. I, I'm not good with Celsius. I think it was somewhere around 50 degrees Celsius. You know, it was like. 180 degrees Fahrenheit in, in Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is crazy. It's like at the right. limits of human endurance, right? And they're like, like uh, I'm wearing sunscreen. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. telling, I'm not, you know, please, please, you know, what's the saying? Like, don't, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying sunscreen is a racket and not called for it. Clearly where you are, you should, yeah, you should probably put a lot of the SPF 50 on. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, you know, here in the U.S., there's a lot of people who really have like a I'm never exposing my skin to the sun period, you know, and that that's probably not that's probably actually doing harm to them. Not, not. Right. We, should, we should combine different trends and just rub peanut oil all over our faces. <laughs> just cook ourselves. To reduce, reduce allergies, maybe. Uh, how are you? So ends the health aspect of the show. Although the other That's thing right. I should write is I just saw a story today and I know it's going to bother you because I know you're bothered by this. <laughs> but I, I, I did see oh, no. that the, 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 the Russian troll farm that that's been responsible for, uh, uh, uh putting their thumbs on the scale of like us and UK elections in the last few years, they've, they conclusively have shown that they have helped, um, promote the anti anti-vaccination movement. And oh yeah, it's like I mean, surprise, yeah. surprise, you know, because you know, it's like I'm aware of like the it's up by you, right? It's up in uh, I know it's Washington. our state. We did it's they just an announcement this morning. It's going to cost them at least a million dollars, minimum of a million dollars to deal with the measles outbreak. Right. Washington where, State, yeah, yeah. Well, Washington there's also state. one in Europe though, I, which I was not as aware of, uh, um, and it's the same thing where it's been you know this this whole nonsense science you know and it's funny because you know you know it's like you know you read one story and and somebody says you know this vitamin d supplement thing all these supplements are a racket and then it's you know it it i could see where you know you got to know who to trust and who not to trust you know oh, yeah. and who, and, who and somebody else big, yeah. somebody else saying that these vaccinations cause more problems and you don't need your kids don't need them all of a sudden it sounds like the same thing like you know vitamin d is a racket but vaccinations are good nah it's all you know nonsense but it's actually Who wants to trust big pharma. I mean, this is right. a recurring thing. It's like, right. I'm alive because of big pharma. Well, no, I'm alive actually because of the academic research that was taken and paid for typically by government grants that was then commercialized by big pharma, which is where a lot of uh, some of the better drugs. I mean, there's more recent stuff that has less relevance for more people, right? Yeah. So like Vioxx was supposed to be 
uh, a great new anti-inflammatory turned out to have all kinds of problems that were suppressed. The company faced, you know, they ignored warning signs. It was terrible. And so after Vioxx, how do you trust Big Pharma? No, no, the, it's fine. The vaccines are okay. But there's a very simple way to test efficacy of things is you look around the world at places in which there is no financial motivation for a particular thing. So there's no financial motivation for vaccination in uh, in Europe and other places, no profit motive. There's no government motive. So you look at 180 countries or something and you say, are the rates of autism different? Are yeah. the side effects different? Uh, what are the, you know, what are other outbreaks of measles? And you can say, okay, so even if the US big pharma had some weird plot to vaccinate everybody, it was unnecessary and they were disregarding problems. It doesn't explain why the rest of the world is doing it and it's been efficacious and there's no side effects. Um, as opposed to there are other drug things where European or other regulators are like, we don't want this drug in the market. The US allows it on the market. There are these problems, but they're not basic things like vaccines. Yeah. And we've had, you know, it, we had a thing. I remember when Jonas was young, there was a time where he had a, a checkup and he was just, the doctors wanted to give him, I think, three or four vaccinations. And my wife was like, that, that's too much. How about two yeah. and we'll come back? And they're like, okay. You know, and, and I've had, you know, I, I post sometimes about this anti-vaccination stuff. And there are some people who are clearly not anti-vaxxers, but who bring up situations like that, which my wife and I agreed on. You know, we're like, you know what? How about no more than two at a time? And we'll come back in a month or six weeks or whatever and get the other one. Like he's had all the vaccinations that are recommended, just maybe didn't get four of them in one day. And and we, you know, I probably wouldn't have spoken up. I mean, uh, honestly, I you know, I say toughen the kid up, but my wife <laughs> didn't want him stuck four times. <laughs> Something like that, perfectly reasonable. As long as your kid can still say, like, at the age of eight, has had all the recommended vaccinations, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's crazy. Like, it is absolutely yeah. crazy as a child of the 70s uh, and early 80s. You know, like I, I just grew up thinking like, wow, we live in an age of medical marvels. There's, there's something called measles that used to affect kids. I can't get it. You know, polio brought down a president. I can't get it. You know, if it's, I just do you ever think measles would come back? I honestly like it just no, it's it's horrific. It, but it's it's interesting because this is that um, not to get political, but it's the this spans ideology. So it has more yes. to do. It's with, not quite left right. It is. Yeah. It is definitely, you know, it's, it's not, a rejection of empirical evidence. It's a right. rejection of sort of fact, which has infected us all over the place. Is it's in a world in which it's increasingly hard to know. What is really fact-based? I can understand why people start subscribing to a belief in like – I mean Gwyneth Paltrow is a great example yeah. where Goop. a terrific actress – Goop is a – Goop is a terrible thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible influence but in a very particular way. Like she's actually I think endangering uh, my online friend, Dr. Jen Gunter, who has a uh, great new book out about the vagina that apparently people should buy. <clears throat> I think whether you have one or not, it's a very good book apparently. Can't wait to get a copy and um, great cover. So um, she's been a leading voice, not against Goop, but at like trying to demystify these things like, like you know, why is a jade egg bad to insert <laughs> into your body? Well, it's because the surface is essentially a porous surface and like you, get an, you can get infection from it. It's not safe. So yes, people may have done it a thousand years ago. The jury's out on that. But like today we understand the transmission and vector of illnesses. We're going to live to be on average more than 40. It's really – a, an unhealthy thing. So if you need to do that, maybe there's a different kind of object that would work. Um, but you know, there's just, there's a rejection of 
I think there's a desire to try to find something more. And sometimes that leads people into magical thinking. Yeah. And I think with vaccines, the fact that they've been so effective, we just don't look at it as a problem. And when it's not a problem, you think you're being lied to when you're told it is one. Yeah. Then you have an outbreak and they interview people whose kids have measles is like, yeah, well, sort of, I wish now. The great one was somebody, I think this is real, on Twitter said, I wish there were, you know, said, I didn't get my kids vaccines and now they have, they may be exposed to measles. I wish there were a way to prevent that. Right. What, I, where, like, what, what? what is it? What, what is, what is the best advice for protecting my kids? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I saw and, that. But, and people were I, like, know, invent a time machine, go back yeah. and, and get your kids vaccinated. <laughs> it I was, know. And it's, I, I want to laugh and I want to not laugh because I, right. I think it's ridiculous. Like I'm somebody who, you know, there's this, um, I uh, always like this from uh, art history, which was these Egyptian uh, statues. They always show the uh, these country, you know, the pharaohs and leaders like staring directly at the sun. And there was a sun worshiping society and so forth. This idea of like looking straight at the truth. It's really, really hard. It might burn your eyes out, but you got to do it. And I feel like there's a, a difficulty in just accepting what's real, however uncomfortable is to you and and it's very easy to believe in conspiracies when in fact conspiracies abound around us how do you differentiate right. between the russians influencing the 2016 election and um, big pharma trying to affect children with vaccines or, or how about you this how about this uh this awful dreadful sackler family behind the uh one of the oh, opioids uh every day a new horror from them like uh, they just didn't care right if not only did they not care then they then they uh, then they had the brainiac idea that maybe they could make money on uh, the uh, drugs people take to get off opioids. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, treatment's probably a growth business that we created, right. so perhaps we could make money there, too. Right. Talk about How institutionalized, legalized corruption. Oh, my God. Absolutely horrible. Right. And yeah. again, I you know, I get it where it all kind of blurs together and you just want to chalk it all up, but some of this is, you know, important and good stuff. Yeah. And it's just, cra it's just uh, maddening. Measles. I, I just cannot believe that measles... <laughs> No. I, I, honest to God, I mean, you just never would have thought of this. Like, you know, when we were kids, you know, it's 1980, I'm a seven-year-old. You think, what are, what are the problems going to be on your mind when you're 40 years from now, when you're 40, you know, a middle-aged man, John? Uh, measles was not one of the problems, you know? I, I assumed we'd have eliminated all disease because of vaccines. It's yeah. actually the most – there's two things that are most shocking to me in 2019. One is that more diseases haven't been eliminated, especially yep. ones that really – it's just a matter of a small amount of money. And that's something like the Gates Foundation, yeah. like river blindness and things like that. Like things that require so little money in relative terms with such an incredible personal and productivity benefit. And the other is – have you have you had an X-ray in the last several years? Uh, probably, but not. it's like magic now. You remember how even oh, like yeah, in yeah, ten yeah. years ago there's yeah. still the film and whatever. I had yeah. to get one. They worried I had maybe walking pneumonia or something the other day, so I go and there's you know I don't I don't but I walk in and the guys like oh yeah this is great. I was chatting with the guys like we're done. It was like three minutes start to finish. And he's able to review them, examine them, send the file back to the doctor. By the time I left, I already got like a reading like, yeah, everything's fine. You know, that to me is actually yeah. the most yeah. understated miracle. And it's a great you know example of all the aspects of technology that come together. Yeah, they can see inside you really well now. It's really, really amazing. It's and it, cool. yeah, And it happens very quickly. Yeah. Amazing sensor technology. All right, let me take a break. Might as well. And thank our first sponsor. They've been in the news lately. It's our good friends at Eero. Look, Eero does Wi-Fi so well. Basic idea of the Eero system is that they create a mesh network. Basic Eero kit, I believe, comes with a base station and two of their 
smaller nightlight type things, but you can get as many as you need. You go to their website, it, tell them to figure out the size of your house. They'll, they'll recommend a kit for you. That's just perfect for your home. Uh, basic idea. You plug one of them in to your cable modem, wherever your internet really comes in. That's your main station. And then you just plug in other ones around your house. Maybe you have a three floor house. You put one on every floor and it saturates your whole home with one network. So it's not like, Oh, now you've got three networks and, and your devices have to like jump around and it, Everything from your device's perspective looks like one network, but the three devices on the Eero side work together to create one mesh network. It is so much better for saturating an oddly shaped house or a big house or a tall house with network than trying to get one base station somewhere in a central location, or maybe you don't even have a choice because this is where your cable comes in. It has to be in this one spot, like in the one side of the house, trying to get one base station to saturate your whole house with a strong Wi-Fi signal. Mesh networks are the way to go. Eero is great hardware, so easy to set up. Everything goes through the Eero app, which is just a terrific app for iOS, works on the iPhone, works on the iPad, and you can use it to set up all sorts of things. Like you can set it up optionally if you want to get a notification every time a new device joins the network. Um, you can sign up for their Eero Plus system, which gives you all sorts of stuff like ad blocking, content blocking, and ways to manage like your kids' devices and stuff like that. Um, all it, it all sounds like, wow, that would be really hard. You have to be like a network engineer to get something like that working. Uh, not with Eero. It is so easy and obvious to look at it uh, and figure out what to do on the, on the, on the app. Uh, I'm speaking to you right now. If you hear me, it's because Glenn's hearing me speak over an Eero network here at Daring Fireball World Headquarters. It is, it is truly a terrific product. I've been using it for years. And it's even easy when you do things like upgrade. Because I got an Eero with the first generation hardware years ago when they first started because they sponsored the show. And then when they came out with their second generation hardware, which adds all sorts of, I forget what it does, but it's just better signal. Uh, doesn't matter. It's just better. That's what you get if you buy it now anyway. But I wanted to figure out how hard is it going to be to replace like my first generation base station with the second generation one couldn't have been easier. There's even, it's just like a big fat button in the app. That's like, Oh, you want to replace an Eero with a new Eero? Here's what you do. One, two, three, wait 30 seconds for it to come back online. You're all set. And that's all, all there was to it. Easy to set up, easy to manage. I, I really love it. Uh, what do you do to find out more? They have a special deal, by the way, for daring fireball readers. Uh, you can get a hundred dollars, off the Eero base unit and two beacons package. The beacons are the smaller ones that plug right in. They're like a little nightlight. That, and they literally have a nightlight if you want them. You can turn that light off in the app. Uh, but uh, one base unit, two beacons package. You can save 100 bucks, and you get a year of their Eero Plus service by going here. Go to Eero.com, E-E-R-O.com slash the talk show. And at checkout, just enter the same code as the URL slug, the talk show, and you'll save a hundred bucks off their one base unit, two beacons package. My thanks to Eero for their continuing sponsorship of the show. Don't know how long that's going to last because the reason they've been in the news is uh, it was announced last week that Amazon is going to buy them. Don't know how that's going to work out, but in the meantime, I, 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 you know, I, I recommend it. A little bit weird, a little bit sad. I wrote that it's a little sad because I liked him as a plucky upstart in the hardware industry. And it seems like every plucky upstart either goes bust or gets bought by Google, Amazon, Microsoft, or Apple. 
Yeah, it becomes part of an ecosystem issue. Is is it seemed to me like they were doing pretty well on their own. They were, you know, one of the there's only one other real startup that's in that space. I think that's been that stayed yeah. independent. I think the rest got acquired. Um, but yeah, they wanted they need to be part of a bigger whole because they'll get pushed out. Or maybe they did their plotting in the future and they said, you know, in three years, every company that has an ecosystem is going to have a mesh system and there's going to be no space for us in the market. So we got to have an exit plan or we're going to be going to be under me. I just use old tin cans, tin cans and string. <laughs> That's this from the guy who used to run the Wi-Fi uh, <laughs> working. Yeah. Wi-Fi news uh, blog. Two t- I like ethernet. Ethernet is great. I have ethernet in my house and Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, I'll be back to ethernet eventually. There's going to be <laughs> some kind of vaccination apocalypse and everything's going to have to be wired. I'll just string it. Uh, a lot of news to cover and yeah. some of it is even broke today i'll just get this one out of the way because i wrote oh, about yeah. it before i went to the doctor is is the wall street journal had a report today that apple is teaming up with goldman sachs to do a, yeah. a credit a credit card like a mastercard an apple credit card and i i have to say i, I just uh, I'm not, it, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth because i i don't like the credit card industry i i think that it's I I I I think the interest rates are too high. I I I really do, and I think it's too easy for people to get in debt. And it's like, you know, I mean, I'm I shoot from the hip, but it's like I like I quipped on Daring Fireball. You know, if this works out, what are they going to do next? Start doing payday loans at the Apple Store? <laughs> and I get it that all sorts of big companies, Disney has a credit card, and and any place you go on vacation and hotels have their own credit cards. Every airline has their own credit cards. But to me, having your own credit card when you're not a bank is like something industries do. Like the airlines are the perfect example where they're long established. They're out of new ideas to make money. Their margins are getting ground down every way. I mean, when you think of the airlines, at least in the U.S., do you really think of customer service-oriented companies, or do you think of companies who are looking for a way to charge you twenty-five dollars to get another bag, you know, onto your trip? Yeah, it's like it's about always the uh, Apple should uh, buy a cable company, and I'm like, no, no. What's the most hated companies in the country? It's cable companies and it's credit card companies. Yeah, they should definitely be involved in both industries. That people, although you could argue there's an opportunity to change things. Um, this is what I thought about Virgin America, which is I want to say the late lamented because I got folded into yeah, uh, and then- my. Second favorite airline is Alaska Airlines, so that wasn't terrible for me, but it's not the same. Not the Virgin, same. Virgin America, I felt like they always did everything they could do within the structure of a terrible, broken, and dysfunctional system to make your experience better. Yep. And that included – I had a Virgin America credit card, and I think the annual fee was like $150, but it let you do – Free refunds and exchanges wow. on tickets. That's plus free bags, Free bags and free food and a free like class upgrade, like micro class upgrade yeah. to like, you know, premium cost, you know, coach or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, man, this it was so in keeping with their philosophy. It's like, yeah, yeah, we have a branded credit card and we'll give you 1% or what I'll give you miles. Yeah. But what we're really going to do is give you a better service <laughs> because you bought into us. So I was on like, a, yeah. On American, which is what I fly all the time, premium coach really just means, well, you're closer to the front of the plane. So you'll get off 
sooner. Like there's no dirty cup. We give you a clean cup. There's no difference in like legroom or anything. Whereas Virgin's premium economy actually had (laughs) more like a little in like an inch or two of more legroom. It it really was you know something. Yeah, they gave you free food and it was I miss I miss them. But but like I wonder. So does Apple? This is always that argument. Apple tried to do that with the cell industry. The cell industry was the most hated industry in the country, just about besides credit card companies, cable operators, and Apple came in. And said, we're going to do unlimited service. We're going to do this. They forced change. And so the cellular industry is still kind of terrible, but it's morphed into something that is generally bearable, and especially when they got rid of overages and they switched to throttling. So, um, you know, you no longer can wind up with a $1,000 bill accidentally. Like it has gradually gotten to that point. And so Apple was part of the push. If Apple had never gotten into, well, who knows what kind of company they'd be if they've never released an iPhone, what would the cell industry be like? I'm like, do they have an opportunity to make the credit card industry less horrible by being involved in it. I don't know. Well, it would be nice if that was their, I hope that's their attitude and I hope it's not to make as much money as they can uh, profiting off people's debt that they shouldn't have incurred at the first place, paying interest rates that should be, in my opinion, illegal. Yeah. Like 20. I mean, I, (laughs) I had some balance on a card and I was like, uh, I've got these, I've got some money on some cards at 0%. I'm like, all right, if you're gonna give me free money, this is actually less than the interest rate I have. And so I got, uh, I paid off some balance and I was like, oh, I wonder what the balance transfer deal is now. And it's like, uh, you can transfer money at 20%. Like, <laughs> How is that oh, legal? <laughs> I don't, it doesn't seem right to me. Like I have good credit and no, I can understand. I mean, there's prime and subprime and whatever. Like maybe if I was bad credit risk, but I'm like, I don't think that that's, that's a got, gotcha. That's a, we want you to accidentally not pay and pay just 20% uh, interest. I, you know, maybe I'm misremembering. I, I don't know, but I, I did. I ran up credit card debt that was unwise when I was in my twenties. Um, and I, as I recall though, I was paying like seven or 8% interest and I don't know, maybe I got a student rate, maybe that, cause that's when I got the card. I don't know. No, no, uh, they used to be lower. They used to be like eight to 12%, even it, when, it, I mean, we're at a historic still, not historic, we're at a relatively low prime rate, relatively low interest right. rates it, overall. I was and paying, it used to be prime plus like five or 7%. Yeah, I don't know. And now I, it's like prime plus 15. I was paying like eight, 8% interest and I, it was way too much. It was, it was everything, everything my dad had told me not to do. Everything anybody with any sense tells a 20 year old in college who's finally getting credit cards offers well whatever you do don't you know don't run up more than you can pay off in a month and of course i did but, I did uh, you know that too. <laughs> but now it's like so amy and i are in a situation where we're for years we've literally only had one credit card we have an amex and and it's the only credit card we have we have debit cards for the bank and a couple other uh, debit cards from like paypal and uh, i have a square cash card that's debit i have apple pay card now that's debit you know it's all de- i have a gazillion debit cards and one credit card and we were getting a mortgage two or three years ago. And that turns out, I thought that was good, but it turns out that's bad. You're supposed to have like two <laughs> or three credit cards. You're supposed to pay them all off, but you're supposed to have more. And then we're like, well, should we get another oh, credit card? And yeah, they're like, oh, no, cancel- no, no. And they're like, it's too late now. Like whatever yeah, you do if is- If you cancel credit cards, it makes your credit score worse. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just this Kafka-esque situation where they're like, you should have two or three credit cards. Don't, and they're like, don't you have a Target card or something? And we're like, no, we don't have a Target card. You know, it turns out Target actually has a very nice cash back thing where you get like 5% off all your Target purchases. I didn't know that. So it turns out Target card is, you know, is actually, if you shop a lot there, is actually a good card to have. But I, I, I just thought it was sensible to have one card 
You pay it off every month. The Amex we have, you have to pay off. I don't even think we're allowed to carry a balance. We just, whatever we charge, we pay off at mm-hmm. the end of the month. And it turns out that for your credit, that's actually bad. You're supposed to have two or three and pay them all off. But when you're in the process of getting a mortgage, don't sign up for <laughs> more credit cards. That looks bad. You're supposed to already have them. So anyway, you know, a couple years later, we have the mortgage, you know, but we're thinking, you know, if, if that's supposedly better for our credit, why don't we sign up for another credit card? Yeah. And we're looking and we're thinking, well, we fly American all the time. So maybe we'll get this American, there's an American airlines card and it gets you, it sounds expensive. It's like a $400 a year fee, but it gets you unlimited access to the, their lounges. And oh yeah, yeah. And we, you know, in combination of Philly and Orlando for going to Disney and a couple other places where we travel, it would it would probably be worth it for the lounge access alone. Um, and there's a couple other it benefits like a multiplier on your miles, you know. So and we did the bag, math, bag fees yeah. too, right? So it's like yeah. seventy five bucks for the three of you. Uh, right? Yeah, effectively. Each, each yeah, effectively, it's like you get treated like you have platinum status, no matter what your status ah, is. Yeah, so you see, can, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's it seems like a decent card, but and we have no, you know, all we plan to do with it is charge our airline tickets, you know, for everywhere we go henceforth, you know, to use that. Anyway, I'm reading the fine print of this thing and it's like the starting interest rate is like 15% or 14% or something like that. And that's like, you know, and then it goes that's up low. from there. But yeah. that's crazy. No, that it's all, but it, absolutely it's all gotcha. insane. It's all gotcha. But, and this is the thing is you would think there'd be space in the credit card industry. Like why is there not a disruptor in there at this point? There have been in the past, you know, Discover was a whole different kind of model. Yeah. There were other companies, but right now I don't feel like there's anybody in the credit card industry saying we are going to, you know, we're going to have a high, you have to have a credit score of, you know, whatever. It's going to be super high. You have to have 700 or 650 right. or whatever. Uh, so we're only going to take people who are super high risk or, or super low risk, um, but we're going to have, we're only going to charge, you know, prime plus five. Yeah. Uh, and so we're not going to encourage balances, but if you have a balance, it's not going to be, you know, 15 or 20%. I mean, I have, I have cards. I have a couple airline cards for this exact reason. I have the, I have a, the cheaper Alaska card because I fly that just enough. And um, my wife and I both got United cards recently because they're like, we'll give you like 40,000 miles. And we're like, well, we're, you know, we were, going to, we were able to go to Europe, uh, go to London yeah. for a couple of weeks last summer entirely on miles. I cash all the miles in. And then we both got United cards and by next year we'll have like a couple hundred thousand miles again between bonuses. And I run all my business stuff through the card. Yep. Uh, so it's this really weird you know, scam, but the, but the interest rate on the United card, I think is 25%. So we pay everything down, of course. <laughs> Crazy. Well, I mean, I feel very fortunate. Being but how is that even a legal down. interest rate? That's, that's I u- usury. I mean, it's, it's usurious. It's, it's really, I, I, I just can't. I don't know I, why the market, but the market should have solved that. There should I, be a disruptor in the market right. that is well-funded by somebody who's a, you know, Warren Buffett right. style person who's like, yeah, yeah, I got billions of dollars and we're going to create the uncredit card. Why, right. why, you know, that hasn't I think happened. that, I think that, you, that, that somebody should be able to come in and do like, like you said, like a prime rate plus five, and it shouldn't even have to require that high of a credit card or, or credit rating. You know, like you shouldn't even need great credit. It should be like anything but bad credit. You should be able to get in on that. I can't see how that's not super profitable. I, I really can't. I, it, it, I don't know. So I, I really just, yeah. am a bit depressed reading that Apple is getting involved in this because it just really see it just seems like another canary in the coal mine of like ideas that companies have when they're out of regular ideas. Let's let's sell a credit card. Yeah, I'll be curious when we see what their rates are. Now it's possible it will be like a ridiculously old throwback 
uh, rate because that's a, Apple's in the position where Goldman Sachs right. would never offer a card with a low rate, but Apple can say, yeah, yeah, we're self-insuring the card, yeah. you know, with fifty billion dollars from our stuff yeah. or stow or the, something the, like that. The gist of the wall and and friend of the show and occasional guest Dan Fromer, uh, it runs a, a mailing list uh, points party. Which is all about you know he's oh, a yeah. real he's a real super nerd yeah. on, on airline and credit card points and and I'm like enough of one where like every <laughs> once every couple every year or so like I like I said like my wife and I were just like let's see if we're gonna get one more credit card what should we get and we're like well you know we should get like a Visa or a Mastercard we can use it everywhere it doesn't take Amex and you know seems like you know we'll get the most out of this American Airlines one because we fly American because ninety five percent of all the planes that leave Philadelphia are American. Um, I, I get it that I get why people geek out on this stuff. Um, and, and the journal story though, is that Apple is not going to chase the, that this Apple credit card is not going to chase the sort of rewards oriented mm. cards. Um, they're just going to do like 2% cash back. And I, I would presume like the journal even said, like we presume some kind of discount on Apple stuff like maybe you'll get five percent cash back every time you buy something from apple mm -hmm. um i i can only presume they would do that it's because it seems like a no-brainer if they're going after their best customers you know that seems like the mo one of the most likely ways to get them and you know to get them involved but they're not going to do anything like air, uh, airline uh clubs you know uh or anything like that but that their other point of appeal will be integration with the iPhone and that you'll get like Apple watch style circles about your financial health or something. Oh, interesting. And that doesn't seem appealing to me really. I, I don't know. My Amex thing has a great integration with iOS. You install the Amex app and you sign in and it's the same sign in you use on their website. And I have it set up. It gives me a notification every time my card is charged which is great. I mean, I kind of trust them on fraud anyway, but it's, you know, and it just is a nice reminder of like, um, like monthly stuff that you have on your card. And it's like, it's just, to me, it's a nice reminder of, Hey, why am I paying $10 a month for that? I never use that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should cancel it, it, you know? And it's just one alert when the cards charged, that's it. Uh, and I can go into the app at any time. They have nice integration with the Apple wallet. Uh, so you can use your card with Apple pay. Um, and then I can go in the app and see all of my charges and, you know, the Amex app categorizes stuff. If I want to see stuff like how much have I blown on restaurants in the last month? You know, very easy. It's just like a tab. I, I So I can't see what <laughs> I can't see what Apple would do that would be better than that. I mean, maybe other credit cards aren't as nice as the Amex app, but I, it doesn't seem like that would be a reason to sign up for an Apple credit card. No, I mean, yeah, I've got the uh, the Chase United card is um... – <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Chase card is is just as well integrated. I've got an Amex, and it's there, so I can compare them. Uh, and the apps are very good. Like Apple's given good hooks, and the yeah. the uh, Apple Pay works, and Wallet is great. And I I can't think what else would be a benefit um, that would be a typical thing. Like it's one thing if you go in the Apple Store and the credit card does something fancy, but you know how often is even the most avid person in an Apple Store buying something? Uh, not very often. So I mean, the only advantage they can give you is. It's got Apple's name on it, and maybe that's what you know. They're a lifestyle brand now, so <laughs> people just yeah. want that card with the Apple on it. It'll it'll do that thing where you move it and it glitters, just like yeah. the uh, the Apple Pay thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. If anybody Apple doesn't cash. know, there's there's a very cool uh, feature of the Apple Pay Cash where if you <clears> tilt your phone, it does something with the uh, accelerometer 
to create the illusion that the on-screen card you see has like a holographic label. And and it's more than just a cool feature, if you think about it. It's actually a way so that, you know, like, if you know that to look for this, if you're worried, like, that, uh, you know, like, if I'm PayPaling you 50 bucks f- to split a dinner tab and you're worried that I just screenshotted <laughs> it <laughs> and, and I haven't really given you 50 bucks, I've just sent you, t- you know, sent you an iMessage with a screenshot that makes it look like it, it wouldn't have that holographic yeah. effect. It's a way for you to say, yeah, this is a legit Apple Pay cash payment. It's a nice touch, and it's just what my question is always. This is um, this gets you into that like uh, Clayton Christensen thing is like it's what what is the job of a thing, right? Yeah. And the question is, what is the job of a credit card? And the job of a credit card is to make trans like for the consumer. The job of a credit card is to remove friction and fuss and make something like an invisible thing. I, I had this conversation. I don't know if you've had this conversation with Jonah, but at different times I have with my kids. My my younger, who's eleven, was like. It's like, what's the deal with money? Like he had done some dog walking. He gave me, he gives me a $20 bill to deposit for him in his account. And he's like, this is super weird. I'm like, yes, it is. So he's going to give me the money. I'll have the cash bill. And then I go line. I just transfer that into, you know, his account's LinkedIn because he's a minor. And he's like, how does money work that you just transfer bits around? Like, why does that make sense? And I'm like, it doesn't. Like, right. it really doesn't. You know, it was only a few years ago, several years ago, that um, don't think every about night, it. Don't think about it too hard. Yeah, so you think about it too hard. <laughs> it's like the Monty Python sketch: the buildings uh, erected entirely by hypnosis. Right. And um, then, and then you're like, let me tell you about what's going on in Venezuela. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. Uh, but like, you know, I hate to laugh. Only, I'm not, I'm, I, don't, I hate oh, to no, laugh it's at the ter- plate, It's but... a terrible humanitarian crisis, but it's incredible. So right. you know, there are a bunch of pilots who are really bummed several years ago because they are making a great living every night they would fly pallets of checks from all over the country to federal reserve offices and that was their job they were on like midnight flights and the checks would be brought in right and they would fly the physical checks to the federal you know to I don't know, 19 federal reserve offices or something like that and i found this pilots forum i was researching something about the check 21 thing which made it possible to do uh photo based deposits of checks that we can do now which has you know yeah. gone on for years now but when this was new and the pilots were like this is terrible like like a big chunk of my living has been these you know midnight flights every weeknight i fly checks so, you know, you abstract that. So we don't even fly checks. I take a picture of a check if I get a check or it's bits. And so it's perfectly reasonable. So so what is the job that an Apple credit card could do that another credit card can't? I can't think of a job. So I'm hoping they have one. It's not just we give you 5% back on Apple purchases. All yeah. that would be fine, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a little – I don't know, a little stressed by it. Can I tell you, I'll tell you this. Dan Fromer actually turned me on to this card. Uh, do you have the uh, Square Cash app? Yes, I do. So, What's the deal? There's some kind of special right. thing with that, right? Yeah. So I've had the Square Cash app for years and and it's sort of, you know, just sort of fallen into the back of my iPhone as something I don't really use. I had used it in the past for things like, hey, here's a four of us are going out to dinner. I'll pick up the check. You just give me the money and then I could Square Cash, you know, you whatever it takes for me to if it ha- you know, usually you just put a bunch of credit cards in and, and the restaurant splits it, but maybe it's a restaurant that doesn't want to do that, you know. Whatever. Or you owe if you owe somebody 100 bucks for something, you Square Cash it to them. But now I use Apple Pay for that. But I still had the Square Cash. But you, what you can do in the Square Cash app is say I want the card too and they send you a, a Visa debit card. It's kind of yeah. nice. You sign it on screen and then and then they like laser Im- 
etch your signature onto the front of the card. It's a it's a very <laughs> cool looking credit card. It's just a flat black card with my signature, and you can draw whatever you want. It doesn't have to be your signature. Um, but the thing that makes this card very cool that that Dan turned me on to is they have these thing called boosts, and you go into the app. And you say, pick your boost. And they wrote, they, they change over time. Like uh, Shake Shack was on it for a while. And we have a Shake Shack in the neighborhood we go to. Mm. Um, but they also have one that it's really the whole reason I got the card. It's just a dollar off any purchase at any coffee shop. Oh, that's wild. And it's literally any coffee shop. It's not like, well, here's our list of, of partners. It's Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and whatever. It's anything that's a coffee shop. Even like neighborhood ones that I would think this isn't going to work here because House Square going to know this is a coffee shop. Well, they know it. And you can go in and get like a $2 just black coffee and you get a dollar back on every purchase. So it's like – That's for, hilarious. And that's, that's what I tend personally to drink at a coffee shop is just like a, a – you know, like the cheapest thing on the menu, a black coffee. So I'm getting like a 50% cash back <laughs> on my coffee purchases. And even when I get something else, like for my wife, it's usually like the combined bill for two beverages is like six bucks. A dollar back is 16% uh, cash back. It's crazy. And it's, it, how is this John, possible? John, they make it up in volume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, it's, it's, <laughs> but this is Jack's well-run company. As opposed yeah, exactly. To Twitter. exactly. And, and, but, but they're doing – no, I've heard Square has apparently done very well. So I don't know. I'm trying to remember where they are on the profitability well, I don't, I don't know, but standpoint. It, it, but it's by all reports, Square has made – like they've grown in a really sensible manner. They're making good decisions. So this is likely – a, uh, an incredible customer acquisition tool that yeah. then it applies got, in other areas. It got me to get the card, you know, and I'll tell you, if you, well, you now know, I'm going to get the card. <laughs> if you're <laughs> you out there, if you've got the square cash app, which is free, and then you can hook it up to your bank account yeah. to load money in. Cause it works like a debit thing. <sighs> That's free. And to get money and back it, out is free. You don't pay 10% it, it, off on whole foods. I found his article and yeah. there's a whole, so did you see, this is a, a side yeah, whole foods is you, another one. And, to, and, did, and so the catch, you think, well, how, what's the catch? The catch is it's only up to like 150 bucks or something at whole foods. And you can, yeah. you can easily go over that, but even so that's 15 bucks. <laughs> Did, did you see the pictures? We had a uh, a big snowstorm for Seattle. It was actually a, a fair amount of snow. Like we were all laughing about it originally, and then it just kept snowing. And, and Seattle is hills, and we don't yeah. have people don't have top, no, you know, I, uh, my snow friend, tires. I was talking. I have friends up there. Brent, yeah, Brent, and, uh, Brent Simmons, and yeah, Gus, uh, Gus Mueller is up there. Somewhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so we were we were sort of shut down here, but we were kind of prepared. But uh, you probably saw the photos. People went in and like bought everything off the shelves. And it wasn't like they were buying bread and milk. They were buying like arugula and like goat cheese. It was like – If something but, is left and it's edible, oh my God. buy it. was it. hilarious. Yeah. And my wife went in and she sent me a picture and I thought, well, this is funny. And then I searched on Twitter and there are thousands of photos of people just laughing. They're like, I'm at Fred Meyer. So the one place – I went up before the storm. There's a Whole Foods uh, near my house. They just opened and they put it in a location that apparently nobody has discovered. And so I go there and the place is empty all the time. The people there are perfectly nice. Before the storm, their shelves were totally stocked. I should have bought more stuff there. But so I have a Whole Foods I can go to and, and always get in. But yeah. there's that Amazon connection too. So I'm going to be paying uh, you know, Jack Dorsey. I'm going to give him money. 
to use, or actually I'm going to take money from him, so that's okay. And then we give the money yeah. to Jeff Bezos <laughs> up the street. But if you want to get in on the sweet, some sweet, sweet venture capital money that yeah. is just floating around out there, get yeah, the yeah. Square Cash debit card. And you can switch your boost in the app whenever you want. So you can go get a cup of coffee, get your dollar boost on the coffee purchase, and then head over to Whole Foods and switch. You have to go in the app and switch the oh, boost. Oh, switch you can, it. You can only have one active at a time, but there's not really a limit. Like um, the limits are all very, very fair. So like on the coffee one, there's a 30-minute timeout before you can use it again. Oh, sure, sure. So the idea is if I were going to buy coffee for me and you, I couldn't just use it for mine, then use it for yours and get $2 back. You have to wait 30 minutes. It, it's ridiculous. But you can switch immediately. You can switch to the Chick-fil-A one and go across the street and get a chicken sandwich and use the boost right away. Oh my God. You just saved it. Well, this is a, it's a great listener tip. Save me a bunch of money. I don't yeah. know about the whole foods thing. I'm an, I'm an Amazon prime. So I go there and I scan my card and there's like, it, it starts to feel like you're, you're playing a video game. You go in and there's the shelf tags are, uh, are, uh, RF based and automatically update. They're like Amazon tags. Now I'll use the square card and the Amazon and the, th- uh, scan my thing and 2d codes. It's amazing. I've heard that the Amazon uh, Whole Foods merger is isn't hasn't gone as smoothly as Amazon anticipated. Interesting, interesting. Just that the, the the Whole Foods business is more complicated than Amazon anticipated. Yeah, I, I haven't believe it. I always wonder. This is like whenever anybody said Apple should go into business X, my reaction has always been business X has a tiny margin. Why would they do that? Yeah. And so when Amazon, I mean, books can have a very large margin. Some of the businesses. Amazon progressively entered businesses with larger margins, which is smart. And the Whole Foods thing is like the grocery business is historically, classically, a very high volume, very low margin business. And Whole Foods and a few of the other sort of fancier chains have been able to use merchandising and other things to crack that and, you know, crank the margin up a little bit. But most of what you're selling is like lettuce and milk and bread. Yeah. And very little is, you know, sushi and uh, and baguettes or something. Or not baguettes, right. but I don't know, croissants. So, yeah. uh, or, or notepads or something. So I don't know. I mean, I just wonder about the synergy of you walk into the stores and it's like, is this when I buy an Amazon Dash probably or Dot? Probably not. I don't know. Maybe I will. <laughs> It doesn't seem like it's uh, the perfect thing. I do like the integration. There's Amazon lockers. Uh, there's yeah. uh, that kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I enjoy Amazon's growing. I mean, I'm a big customer. I mean, I'm wary of them, and you know. But I I, I mean, we spend a fortune at Amazon all the time. We get all sorts of stuff from Amazon. Uh, you know, and they're they're growing physical presence is intriguing to me. They just opened a new, cause there's a, a couple of whole foods here in Philadelphia. And so they're all, you know, in the Amazon family now, but they just opened an Amazon locker. Um, I forget where it, it's, it's sort of like on the it's close to Penn here, but that's not too, it's not too far from us. It's, it's close mm. enough where it it's closer than the last time I looked for where the nearest locker was to where we live. It was like, ah, I'd rather wait a day and have it show up in my house than go over there. Now it's like, oh, that's tempting. It's, it's, I don't know. And it looks very nice. It looks like a very nice, clean place. It doesn't look, you know, sketchy at the, in the least bit. But it is weird. It's weird to see Amazon in the real world because it's a brand that I associate as not really being real, right? Yeah. It exists yeah. entirely in a browser tab. It's, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what the real world object. I mean, I, I don't know what Amazon is anymore. Uh, I don't know what they're supposed to be because the everything store was, you know, I don't know if that was their label actually, but that's what they get called. And like, I don't, I don't know what they are now. I think they're like a, 
like a ravening job machine or something. I don't know. I don't know. Even in Seattle, so it's very confusing as to like what what is Amazon trying to do? Are they trying to be a, essentially a giant co-op? Um, who was it? Was it Matt uh, Iglesias? Uh, Somebody had that great thing years ago. I probably quoted this even on this podcast before that said before Amazon was making a profit, it was like Amazon appears to be a company whose shareholders yeah, are it was benevolently allowing. Yep. Yeah, it was great. Benevolently allowing uh, its members to take all the money as discounts. And now they're profitable. So it's a different thing. Uh, but what is the future of Amazon? Is it just, uh, you know, they obviously believe they need to grow bigger uh, and they've had setbacks and um you probably don't want to get into the jobs thing. No. I don't know. I just, it's just, they, I don't know what they are. I've read though that their profits, A, it's managed. Like they make the profit. It's like they just turn a spigot and it's like, let's have this much profit, you know? Oh, I see. And, yeah, let's, yeah. It, and it's also the fact that Amazon Web Services has become profitable and there's yes. really nothing, there's really nothing they can do about it. Like they've kind of got to book those profits, you know? I guess they could reduce, just keep reducing the rates of everything to be not you know, to be break even, but it's almost like they can't, they can't turn down the, the profits from Amazon web services. Like they already have industry leading rates on a lot of, you know, these large scale online things that their, their retail stuff is still sort of run the way it used to be. I, I could be wrong on this. I'm not an Amazon expert, but no, I think that's true is that, is that they consistently, everybody, uh, the big players, uh, uh, Google and Amazon and a lot of the, um, there's a lot of smaller, I forget, IBM has business services. There's a bunch of people involved in that space. And they continuously, everyone is continuously ratcheting down just slightly, um, often not by big amounts. And so like you're, you know, I do, I have various things hosted in various places and things just get cheaper all the time or faster or better. And it's kind of cool. It's like you get to see that uh, improvement curve in your bill uh, yeah. every few months. Yeah. But um, I was just talking to Krista Mergen. Uh, panic. She's doing a, a, and I hope that maybe, I don't know if it'll be out before this episode, but I was talking to her about a retrospective of a 10 year ago thing with the gang at panic. Uh, anyway, it'll be fun. She's talking to a lot of fun people, but we were talking about the early days of podcasting and, you know, which is not that long ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the biggest, the biggest problem was that it was very expensive to host hundred megabyte yeah. MP3 files. It was, well, where the hell are you going to put it? And it's like, you put it on your, like your regular web hosting account and it's like, Hey, the good news is you have a couple thousand listeners. And the bad news is <laughs> you've got a thousand dollar bandwidth bill. Yeah, uh, I remember Marco did a bunch of figuring about like, you know, then there was like, do you put it on an edge server or a cloud? Uh, just uh, hosting CDN? the MP3 mm -hmm. files of not even like my show length two and a half hour shows. I mean, like you could do like a tight 20 minute show and you yeah. can like use 64 megabit per second compression to, to kind of make it sound, you know, go to the point where you can even hear it with your ears that it sounds a little crappy. And it was just too big to host. If a couple hundred people were going to download it, it was a real problem. Whereas, you know, we've, you know, it blown past that. That's like a distant memory, but it wasn't that long ago. This is, this is something I was just looking up uh, Stuart Brand's favorite fa – famous formulation, information wants to be free. And as you know, it's like that gets quoted. It gets quoted inaccurately hmm. and it's only half of the formulation. It was information wants to be free but information also wants to be expensive. Hmm. And what he meant by free is he's like the marginal cost of, of – 
providing information, and this is in the 80s, he said this, gets ever lower. And now it's essentially zero. And what he meant by expensive was there's a value. Like the expense wasn't necessarily money. It was that information has a value attached to it. So there's this tension between the ease of delivery and the value associated and and how that works out. You know, sometimes you charge a lot of money. It's very easy to get. Sometimes it's very expensive to get, you know, like all these parameters. But we're now at a point where it's it costs essentially nothing to deliver any individual piece of content. It's only an aggregate that you have to start to worry. If you're hosting 10,000 podcasts and they have a million downloads each, well, then you're talking a little money. But even that money is not a crazy amount. But if you've right. got you know a talk show scale thing, it's essentially the bandwidth bill is effectively free no matter what you did. I mean, not exactly free, but it's not. Uh, it's nowhere near. You're not going to be spending tens of thousands of dollars like you would just a few no. years ago. No, it is amazing. Hey, before we get off the subject of credit cards, one of the things the Wall Street Journal article brought up, at, which I thought was interesting, was that, uh, uh, it, that the rumor is that Apple's card is going to be a MasterCard, which is the second biggest network in the U.S. behind Visa. And it occurred to me, I know Visa has more customers, but it occurred to me that I I tend to think of Visa and MasterCard as being interchangeable because off the top of my head, I couldn't think of any business that takes one but not the other. Like mm-hmm. Amex is pretty widely taken, but it's not that hard to find a place that doesn't take Amex. I know as somebody who who carries one and that's why, you know, then I would be, oh, I'm sorry, I'll take, here, take my Visa debit card. Can you think off the top of your head of an establishment that takes Visa or MasterCard but not the other? I had this happen where I went to – where was it? Oh, I can't remember. They only took Visa and at the time, all I had with me was a MasterCard. All right. Was it Costco? And an Amex. It wasn't not – no, it was not Costco because that's right. well known, right? They only do yeah. one brand yeah. at a time. I don't know if it was when I was, when I was in London. It was really – I was really yeah. – biz- I was like, oh, well, I can pay with – I'm like, oh, it, it throws oh, I don't you have off. that. Yeah. I just didn't have a Visa at that moment yeah. in the right configuration. It was yeah. weird. So Costco only takes Visa. Uh, and it's fascinating. Yeah, they, they cut an amazing, I and mean, they had Amex for many years. Yep. And they cut some incredible. I mean, they get some vast amount of kickback or, I'll, or I'll, proceeds or whatever. I'll put a link in the show notes. But they they only pay zero point four percent processing fees on oh. on purchases. That's the sweetheart deal they got from. Uh, and I, I think the standard for most companies on most credit cards is somewhere like north of two percent. So like yeah, most right. establishments put, pay like two to two point five percent processing fee on every single charge, and they pay zero point four. And they when they had Amex, it was zero point six. And so they talked Visa talked them down. They're like, well, wow. if you'll switch from Amex, we'll give you zero point four. And so Costco, well known company, uh, very very popular, d- devoted devoted uh, fans, uh, only takes Visa because they have. A, you can use any visa you want, but they have a Costco visa you can sign up for, and and they, extra they, deals, yeah. And they only pay zero point four percent to Visa on, on every it's purchase. An, it's an amazing deal because you have to be a member of Costco to shop there, and they probably have some fascinating extra layer of fraud protection yeah. because they have such experience. Because yeah. they have so many deals, so so uh, you know you have with with the card in hand, the odds of you being a bad customer, someone who's going to somehow have a fraudulent card, are probably extremely low. So you're. And it's also possible, I don't know this, I think Apple was engaged in this as well, is that there's a backstop for fraud. And I think there was something – I remember there was talk when Apple uh, launched Apple Pay that they were going to provide – like self-insurance against a certain kind of thing in order to secure yeah. a better rate or yeah. offer a better yeah. rate. And I assume Costco is in the same boat where they're like, they have such good fraud management that they're like, look, it's going to be 0.4%. And if we exceed X, whatever, we're going to pay that overage, but they don't. Cause they know yeah. they, you know, 
That was the only one I could think of off the top of my head. And I, I do recall That's that funny. it was it was more of a problem in Europe. I think maybe that might be – I think you're right that in Europe, Visa might be more – You know, part of Visa's edge over MasterCard is that, that they're out. But in the US, the only thing I can think of is Costco. And that's fascinating. Uh, all right. Let's move off <laughs> personal finance <laughs> advice. Uh, a couple of rumors this week from Ming-Chi Kuo. Ming-Chi Kuo, and he, and he decorated them with some artwork that I presume that he made, he made himself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought the most interesting of them was that he claims that Apple is working on an all-new 16 or 16.5-inch 16 MacBook Pro. And I thought that was pretty interesting. My wife was a huge fan of the 17-inch MacBook Pro. Uh, absolutely loved it and has not been happy with any MacBook. I mean, she's had 15-inch ever since because that's the closest she can get. She feels they're too small. She liked the – it's almost like an iMac-like screen, on, but it's a MacBook that she could move around the house. Mm-hmm. I have a 12-inch MacBook, so I'm a, a small format person. My kids think it's hilarious. I got the MacBook Airs, new models. Yeah. That's kind of a long – like after se- – it's like, you know, you got seven-year-old computers. They're barely working, so one of them is going to be backed up. I'm like, maybe it's time. We'll use some education money. Upgrade them. So they're like, how can you type on that thing? It's so tiny. I'm like, no, I love my 12-inch. Yeah. A little 12-inch computer. I'm a small small laptop man myself, but I could see it. But it's interesting to me that Apple might go back to that. It seemed, you know, I, I don't know, you know. I, I always, I'm always, i always a little suspicious of Ming-Chi Kuo's non-iOS uh, rumors because they seem mm-hmm. to have a lower hit rate. It seems like he's way more – he's always been more juiced in to the, the, the iPhone specifically, uh, maybe iPad secondarily. But I thought that was an interesting rumor. Uh, I can see. I mean, there's a there is definitely an audience for bigger, uh, bigger laptops. You see a lot of them on the on the Windows side, often for gaming. But there's still, yeah. uh, and I mean, God, uh, how long ago? Well, what was the 17 inch when there was a 17 inch MacBook Pro? I don't remember what the actual screen display was. Uh, I don't remember what the resolution was, but I remember, and I remember where I saw one very specifically. I had a friend. Uh, who's a very talented storyboard artist. And I mean, this is probably 10 years ago at this point, but he did the storyboards for a lot of commercials and he did one for an AT&T commercial that was going to star Martin Scorsese. He wasn't directing the commercial, but he was the star. And the premise of this ad was that, uh, uh, a little girl is being put to get bed by her mommy at nighttime and daddy's away on business. And the little girl misses him. And, you know, and, and uh, Martin Scorsese bursts into the bedroom and he, <laughs> he says, oh, no, 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 this is, this is all, this is boring. This is all wrong. Your dad's not away in business. Yeah, right? He's in prison. And the mom is like, no, he's not. He's in Newark. And he's like, no, he's in prison. He killed a man. <laughs> and anyway, my friend did the storyboards for this ad and he got invited to go up. It was shot in Brooklyn in like a real house. And, and he was invited. Do you want to come see this commercial be shot? And it was like, yeah, of course. Um, uh, and he, and he got like an and one. And so I got to see it. Uh, Oh man, that's great. Yeah. I forget where I was going with this. Oh, I remember I was going is, uh, to see the setup of a truly professional, you know, commercial. This was, and it was shown, wasn't just shown on TV. It was like shown. I remember seeing the actual commercial in movie theaters as one of those ads they show you before the movies start. It was the first time anybody in history that I'm aware of was happy about seeing an advertisement before, <laughs> before a movie that wasn't a trailer. But I was like, I was there. I saw this. Um, but I remember specifically, I was, you know, you know, as anybody who knows anything about how movies and commercials are shot, it's an awful lot of work 
and then very in between very short takes of actual filming. Uh, and I, I was fascinated by the setup they had. It was shot in a real family's home. Um, you know, and they, they like put, put like craft paper over all the family's real belongings and tape it all up. And they have these tape pathways, like the, everybody walks in between these blue lines so that we're not, you know, uh, you know, going into rooms that we don't need to go into and we don't have to disturb their stuff. But they had like this whole mobile production center and they used 17 inch, maybe they were power books at the time. Maybe they weren't even MacBook pros, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. but they had like a couple of them set up to like immediately review the footage. I mean, and, and you've always known intuitively that like video, you know, video pros would use the biggest pos biggest and most powerful macbook pros they could get or or a professional photographer wants to see if you're going to look at the images as you're shooting you want them on the biggest screen possible but if you're not in a studio if you're you're out in the field you know that's going to be a a, a portable computer not a desktop computer and that's just where i remember thinking like oh here's who's buying all the 17 inch macbook pros because <laughs> they had like a bunch of them oh you know? yeah and i think i mean i think that's it it's for video but i think that's a very interesting point because I think there was there was a point at which there were a lot more video professionals uh, working on not just on Macs. I don't know if they're all switched to high performance, you know, uh, Thunderbolt three linked uh, GPS. I don't know what I don't know what that market is now, but um, uh, it seemed like that was a more significant segment of the market, and it included people who wanted the portability. It was anybody who needed that kind of power and the portability uh, because there was no good. I mean, monitors were super expensive and not portable. And now you could probably, I mean, there are cases you can carry an LCD yeah. thing with you or you'd have an, a monitor in both locations. That would be crazy in the past because you'd spend so many extra, you know, thousands or $10,000 to do that. Um, but yeah, there was a more, I mean, graphic designers. Yeah. I know a lot of people who had 17 inch monitor. They might have the, the Mac and then they'd have an external monitor, but then they could use the 17 inch one uh, as well when they, you know, were working away from the office. So it, it but that seemed to fall away. It seemed like more people had either a desktop computer or the the uh, retina display made up the difference for them, plus the better brightness and so mm. forth. I can't help but think that if it's true that this is not going to be a replacement for the 15-inch, that this would be an addition to the line. Because, I, I, you know, I understand the simplicity of really only offering two sizes, 13-inch and 15-inch. And, you know, now it's three sizes because they've gone back to 12-inch, as you know. Um, yeah. You know, there's, you know, and the Mac side, I, I think it's one of the things I like about being in the Apple camp is that I don't, I feel like I don't have to make too many hard decisions, uh, like buying a, a windows laptop. It's like, it can be overwhelming. Like my son got a gaming PC for Christmas and my God, are there a lot of options and it's really, you know, it, it's oh, difficult. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I feel like you, you, I feel like adding, going back and adding a 16.5 inch or 17 inch or, you know, size display, it's, I don't feel like that's unduly confusing to the consumer who's just looking for a MacBook. Like you're going to know if you want to, you know, if you want to lug that around and most people are going to say no, you know, most people want something, you know, that's going to be a lot easier to put in a backpack and lighter and they don't really have a need for that, a screen that big. Yeah, but the I people who do want it. There's an interesting problem now too is like how do you decide what what Mac you get? And uh when I was we were gonna upgrade right, our kids' computers, uh we went through that where we're like, I you know, the best the best Mac, the best Mac is like a twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen MacBook Pro, right? That's the best Mac. But we we're trying to figure out the combination where we could get uh high quality 
model from that era that had an SD, SSD because I want future proofing and the speed. I don't want a moving, I don't want a rotating drive in there. Uh, and I wanted sufficient memory. So it's future proofed also, which means, you know, typically like 16 gigabytes. And, uh, so finding a 2014 or 2015 MacBook Pro is an issue. And then they're rather heavy. The MacBook Air is not exactly the right choice, I think. Uh, I'm sorry, the MacBook is not the right choice. The single port and other limitations it has hasn't been refreshed recently enough. So it's kind of a bad thing to buy in like late 2018, yeah. early 2019. The MacBook Pro models, I don't like the touch bar. I don't know if it has a future in the way that it's been expressed. And it's also too expensive for what it offers. So the MacBook Air was like, all right, you know, this isn't affordable in the sense of being cheap, but it's like the dollar amount. Like if this is a computer that they're going to have for the next seven years, yeah. which is feasible, is this the right one? And we figured that was probably their best use of money was to move in that direction. Um, plus the fact that Apple Care now uh, includes, uh, if you buy the extended care, includes um, a very small deductible if you break the screen. <laughs> So, <laughs> like, that's probably the that's the right choice for kids. Yeah, yeah, probably. That's what we did. Um, yeah. But the bigger one, it's like, who wants the bigger machine? Like, if you're either going to get your own monitor and a Mac Mini, Mac and Mac Pros, superannuated. Uh, are you going to get an iMac? I have an iMac that I really like, but you know, it's you just don't have that many choices. So, in that specific area, a 17 inch MacBook uh, Pro makes tons of sense because there's nothing that fits that exact need. If that is kind of the size, power, and portability you need. There's no – like a 15-inch doesn't cut it and there's no desktop that's – you know, there's nothing that's going to be right in that space. Yeah, which brings me to uh, – Mark Gurman had a report yeah. this week for Bloomberg uh, mostly about the progress that Apple has made on quote-unquote marzipan, which apparently is still the code word for the uh, transmogrify – iOS apps to run on Mac apps, which was pre-announced as as a preview of future technology for third-party developers at last year's WWDC, mm -hmm. and and the the big reveal was that in the meantime, Apple itself has used this an early version of this technology to bring four apps to the Mac: uh, Apple News, the Stocks app, which is very very similar to Apple News. Um, because most of what's in the app, the stocks app is just business news about the company's, uh, the home app for home kit automation. And then the fourth one, I'm drawing a blank on what's the fourth Marzipan app. Oh, oh uh, weather. No weather? voice, voice recorder. Oh, right, right. Which voice is recorder. one that I still have to write. I, I, I'm lazy and negligent. I have a rant in me about these apps. <laughs> Voice memos, right? Then that it might but be the, the worst of the bunch in terms of being the most incongruous on the Mac, because one of the limitations of all of these apps is that none of them can open more than one window. So, like if you're reading, a new, uh. if you're reading an article on Apple News, and you want to double click it so that you can open it in a window because you're not done with it or you want to refer to it later and just keep reading new articles, you can't do that. <laughs> And you can't I'm, I'm not sure there's a there's a Mac app that I've hated more than Apple News. I mean, in any version of it, or or in any incarnation, I feel yeah. like Apple News has been. I don't I don't know who it's a, the usual thing is. What is this app for? Yeah. It's not. It's trying to be Flipboard, and it has none of the redeeming features of Flipboard. Right. It is a very bad Mac app. I I enjoyed Apple News as a service. I I like Apple News. I have my iPhone set to send me notifications. Um, from the New York Times and Washington Post, both of which I subscribe to 
Actually, I subscribe to the journal too. I, I don't get many notifications, but I get notifications from all three of those through Apple News. None of them overwhelm me. Very seldom do I get one that is like, come on, that's nonsense. Don't send me nonsense. Send me <laughs> actual news. I like it on, on my iOS devices, and I liked it better when it didn't exist at all on the Mac. And if I happened to have an Apple News URL from Twitter or from an iMessage and I was on my Mac, it would just forward me on to the article in Safari, the same article, but instead of reading it in Apple News. And now it goes, now that I'm upgraded to Marzipan, it goes into Apple News and I get angry. It's a very bad app. The, the, but <laughs> apps should make you angry. I think that's well, probably the, a, good, the lack, a good feature. The lack of being able to open multiple windows is is most insane in the voice memos app. Yeah. Because why in the world would you not? Like I get why the iPhone version doesn't let you open multiple voice memos at once because you're on the phone and the phone is like a one thing at a time thing. And I kind of get it on the iPad uh, because the iPad is sort of a big iPhone and it's simplified computing experience and it doesn't have the concept of Windows. Um, but the Mac, it is the most would be the most natural thing in the world to open multiple of these memos at a time into their own Windows <laughs> and you can't do it. The, the Mac App Store, the new one, is not Electron, right? I mean, sorry, it's not Marzipan. No, no. But, but it it's not. weird because it feels. It is weird. It is it, the new. Yeah. The, the... It's its own thing. Right? But and it will open other windows, but only when you read uh, articles in it, I think. Then it opens a kind of. Is that another window or is it an overlay yeah. you have to click done in? But it's, it is neither fish nor foul, but it really feels marzipan-y. Yeah, it has some very strange navigation in terms of it's all in one window, and I've just opened an article. Now, how do I go back? Oh, I have to go up to the top right corner and hit done. And, done and then, button, yeah. And it and it disappears down to the bottom like it was a, a sheet, but it didn't mm -hmm. look like a sheet while it was open. <laughs> it's an evolving concept, is yeah. what it feels like a little it's, bit. There's a little bit too much of Apple. I mean, you know, look, I'm glad they released. I mean, Mojave has a lot of excellent features in it there's things i use but you know for instance the sms the automatic thing where it drops in uh second factors and codes and sms yeah yeah that's an incredible feature. like that that's great that saves me time and it delights me every time i'm like oh it's just there i just click this thing it's fantastic right um so there are things to be said that are positive but it's it feels it still feels like there's a lot of works in progress on the Mac side, things that are, this is a good idea. And, uh, but maybe, you know, a little more work could have been done before it was, yeah. was pushed out. Well, so Apple told us at WWDC last year mm -hmm. that this would be coming next year to third party developers in some form. Uh, and they would have more to say about it at a technical level at that time. I mean, it's very strange for Apple to announce something like that, uh, you know, in advance. They're, they're not yeah, really, yeah. but you know, I think they kind of knew that if they planned to ship these four apps, in macOS Mojave, um, that people were going to figure this out as soon as they got their hands on the beta of Mojave and poked inside the app bundles. They were going to say, oh, hey, there's something weird going on here. You know, these things look like iOS apps in a lot of ways. And, you know, the smart hackers are going to figure it out. So they had to kind of get in front of it and say, yeah, yeah, it's, these are yeah. iOS apps. Um, Gurman's report was a little curious because he said that this year's focus will be on iPad apps. Yeah. And that iPhone apps would be a year later because Apple's engineers have had a hard time getting figuring out how to get small screen iPhone apps to to run on the Mac. 
and Stephen Trout and Smith pointed out like that's a little weird. In some ways, in some ways, it it seems like it would be easier to get iPhone apps rather than iPad apps to run because you could just run them in a roughly iPhone size window. Yeah, on Mac. yeah. Like the the thing about Windows isn't just that you can have multiple of them on screen at once. It's that they can be any size that you want or need or what makes sense for your app. As I, as I sit here and look at the little tiny Skype window that tells me I've got a Skype recording going on in the background, right? It's just like a little thing floating above my windows. And it's like the size of a business card here on my screen. So it's not obstructing more than it needs to. Uh, you know, that's part of the flexibility of a tiled window graphical mm-hmm. user interface and that you could if that's what you wanted <laughs> to have an iphone app running on your mac you could do it in a little window that's that size and one of the reasons that iphone apps that haven't been adjusted to scale and use size classes etc to to have an uh, ipad counterpart that truly embraces the nature of the ipad yeah. one of the reasons that those apps are weird on ipad is that when you run an iphone only app on the ipad because the ipad doesn't have windows that it can run in it just puts it in an iphone <laughs> iphone size i thing. know i've always thought it's so weird to do that i still have there's a handful of apps like that did Instagram ever come nope. up with an iPad? Inst- Instagram, That's what I thought. Instagram I, is is exhibit A in the I say that and I'm just like, that can't be right. Like every time I think that, it's like, that can't be right. And then I launch it on an iPad, I'm like, what there is why what? you know, there's no there's no reason or sense for it, and they can make it really interesting given how much in the way Instagram's used, they can make it look great. Uh, it's the iPad. most baffling thing in the world to me. One only thing I've ever heard that anybody say that makes any sense at all is that I forget the size of photos that, that Instagram, like when you update your Instagram feed, what the pixel dimensions of the photos that come down are, but it's small enough that they wouldn't, unless they updated it, it would, they wouldn't quite be naturally retina on an iPad. I, I think they've been quietly, like if you zoom, you know, you can't, uh, tap and make pictures right. bigger on Instagram, but you can, you can pinch and zoom. Right. I think they actually do build more resolution in and have for a bit because once you were able to do that and put different, remember when they added that feature that you could have different, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, portions sort of square. Yeah. I think there's more resolution under that. And I well, assume that was a building block for the next thing. Even, that has never come. even if they, even if they just made an iPad app and, and it had to scale the images yeah. artificially to some degree, it would be better than what they have now. I don't get and it. And photos are the one thing that looks the bigger, the better, right? And I just, I, I don't get it. It's one of my very favorite things about having an iPad and using an iPad is if I go on a vacation or there's like a school event or something and I've shot a hundred photos and I want to, let me go through my photos and throw out the garbage and and pick the winners that I might want to share with people. Doing it on the iPad, I just love. I love it. It's one of those things I love on the iPad more than any, more than a Mac, more than an iPhone, because it's like this perfectly intimate. It's it's so big, I can see detail that I couldn't see if I just did it on the phone. It's like so much easier to see. Oh God, this one's no good. The her, the one person's eyes are closed, but you couldn't see it on the phone because mm-hmm. it's too small. And it's just, you know, the pinch zoom is so much more natural than doing it on the Mac. It's, it's so great. No, Instagram, it's a, it's Instagram a, on iPad would be so great. Yeah. It's a, the iPad has a magic window and the, the oh. iPhone is a different beast. I have always thought it's interesting how distinct the iPhone and the iPad are. Even when you get a large uh, iPhone or a small iPad, they really are different animals and people tend to lump them together. I think who write about 
the technology, you know, write about yeah. it from a marketing technology business standpoint when, you know, the iPad remains. It's like it is a magic window. And, yeah. um, and apps that don't take advantage of that are always stunning. But yeah, that is, that is weird. But I could, so yeah, so you're, so, uh, for most apps, most sensible apps, if it's the iPad version is what shows up in Marzipan in the first iteration in Mac OS, then that's fine, right? You're going to well, get a decent size yeah, display. I don't think it's fine at all. I think this is deeply No, I'm sorry. Problem. I mean, I don't mean it's good. Yeah. All <laughs> I right. mean, but I mean, there's a, right. there's, <laughs> it makes some, it makes some sense that right. that's the form factor you choose, but uh, it's, don't get me wrong. I think there's an awful lot of problems and I know I, there's so many problems with this idea. A, there's mm -hmm. the existence proof of the four ones that Apple has done so far. Yeah, and they are very yeah. bad Mac apps. One of the ways that I've, I've mentioned, I keep harping on it, but it, they're, it's very, very bad that these apps are limited to one window. And, and there are ways where you would naturally want to open a second window and you can't, and it feels incredibly frustrating and terribly un -Mac like Um, but that's that's an assumption that iOS developers have safely made for a long time. It is not going to be easy to take an iPad app that assumes that there's only one UI window at a time and that one UI window takes up the whole screen to be updated for multiple UI windows. And this might coincide. There's been rumors that that one of the, you know, hey, let's give some love to the iPad side of iOS would be to to at a low level in the OS give apps a better system-wide, this is the standard way to do it in in the system frameworks to do multiple documents, which I presume would be sort of Safari-style tabs. You know, Safari obviously has the ability to open multiple tabs and has had, had that ever since the iPad existed. Because it would, you know, who would want to use the iPad if you could only have one Safari window open at a time? Um, so how do you do, you know, but but adopting that, if even if, I, if that comes at WWDC, this year, it's going to be a lot of work for developers just to update their iPad apps, let alone do it in a way that makes sense on the Mac. Yeah. And I thought the changes to the app switcher for the iPad were actually really great because it's, you know, it's now it's a very native, it's, it makes more sense in that form factor, the way you see apps. And it's, it also, it felt to me like it's a prelude to document management in that same style as providing a, a preferred way for you to show multiple documents or tabs, you know, the, there's the app screens. And then if you do something else, you get the document screens. So it's kind of a zoom in out oh. kind of thing. So, I mean, I don't know if that's what the UI will look like, but at least there's a, there's a, they've changed the approach from the iPhone form factor. So they're thinking about it differently, but then it no. wasn't extended beyond that. My hope would be the one class of apps that I could see this making sense and okay, the Mac is now better for this than it was before would be like media consumption apps. Like, so there mm -hmm. is no, there's no native Netflix app for the Mac. Like if you want to watch Netflix on your Mac, you've got to go to a web browser and you lose all sorts of things. Um, like the big one is you can't do offline access and you know, it, it's a huge, you know, if you're ever, you know, we we're talking about air travel before. I mean, I know that, you know, it, they always think the Wi-Fi on an airplane is not going to be good for watching Netflix. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not unless it's, I mean, there's those things where they cache uh, movies on the plane. Yeah. But that's a different but that's thing. different. That's different than you, you know, you've got to pick from their cache of movies. And even then it's, in my experience, it's kind of sketchy. So the fact that iPad can, you can say, Hey, give me all 10 episodes of this show. I'm going to watch it on the plane. And then they're just there on your iPad. You never even have to take your iPad out of airplane mode. You don't even have to pay for the Wi-Fi. You, they're just there and you can watch them and you Mac can't do that. 
that kind of stinks. And it's, you know, kind of frustrating because the Mac in theory is the more powerful, capable computer, but it doesn't have a Netflix app. And so if it would be easy for Netflix or easy-ish for them to take their iPad app and turn it into a Mac app that has those features, I think that would be a win for the Mac. And limiting it to single window, et cetera, doesn't really feel like a limitation. Like you're going to want to run the Netflix app full screen probably anyway. Yeah. How many movies are you going to watch at once? Right. And I, you know, I could probably see the same thing for something like overcast. (laughs) Wait, wait. Do do people watch four movies at once? Like they do podcasts at double speed. Weirdos do. I want to watch four episodes at once. I'll just tile them on my screen. Well, I don't know. Uh, So I can see it for those apps. And you know, there aren't, I, I, most of those type of, Media consumption apps, for lack of a better term. I mean, I was just watching yeah. a basketball game on ESPN last night on my iPad. You know, I don't. There's no ESPN Mac app. You know, so there's all sorts of things that. No, no it's that, perfect. And the the picture in picture thing too. It's like you you obviously want on your Mac. I mean, I know you can do it in Safari, yeah. but having a, a Netflix app or other or TV app or whatever that is, um, I it's basically the iPad version with macOS whatever, and that it then can be sized on your screen. I mean, I've got this 20 something inch. I can't remember how many inches <laughs> iMac here and be able to resize it and have it in the corner if I'm watching news in the background. That would be great to not have it tied to Safari. So there's a clear case for it. I remember talking about this with somebody and, and but it's like all these other apps, it's like, man, it, it would just, I can't think of what would make it other classes of apps. I can't see how the iPad app running on the Mac without redoing it from scratch. And if you were going to do that, why, you know, wh- where's the benefit engineering and, and code base wise from just making a Mac app in the first place. Yeah. I've wondered if it's a nail or a hammer looking for nail with this whole thing. Like I understand that it would make sense for Apple to converge and for developers to have a smaller code base. But I, you, you'd think if there were, let's say we were talking about it and we had a hundred examples of apps or 20 categories, but we don't, you know, right. and the ones that Apple did initially are simple ones that are largely unused or, or interesting to most people, especially in a Mac environment. Like, why would I use the Stocks app when I have a website I can right. use that does Stocks, right? And has much more sophisticated. So it's not like, and you you know, media, streaming media, absolutely perfect case. And like, what is case number two? Uh, you know, I can't think of a thing that I use on the iPad that I would want in a, to have an iPad version on my Mac, even if it took on some Mac properties that was single windowed or even with I, and apps, I, really. I use a couple of iPad apps that have Mac counterparts. Now I use the app things to manage my to do's. I, I love Omni outliner. The Omni group has a bunch of great apps. Yeah, yeah. The one that I use is Omni outliner. Um, their Mac apps for things and, and for the Omni group, uh, that they, they don't look like iPad apps running on. <laughs> On the, yeah, on the Mac, they look, they look like real Mac apps. And conversely, their iPad apps don't look like Mac apps running on an iPad. You know, right. there's just very different interaction models. And I, I just don't see how this is a good thing for anything other than media consumption. Yeah, and, we're, and we're nine years into the iPad and no one has yet made a good case for why those should be interoperable or why yeah. they should be the same uh, platform. So either Apple has some really clever ideas that they haven't told us about and haven't occurred to people who are developers or think about right. how this stuff works, or um, it's just not a great idea and it's being driven by forces that don't actually have a great advantage, But um, which is a shame because we don't really want to get shoehorned into something that is not, <laughs> not yeah. good or useful. 
Uh, I mean, I, you know, you could argue uh, there was a report out actually as we record this, I think, from uh, Axios about the uh, ARM migration that's upcoming. Mm, um, I did not see some, this. Breaking oh, yeah, news. Freed, uh, posted something uh, just before I think we started recording. And um, th- there's uh, there's uh, some reports that there's actually like a more like a timetable about I'm arm based IMAX or I'm sorry, arm based max. Uh, and so in that environment, Marzipan and cross platform development maybe makes sense because you're migrating to the same platform, but I don't know. I mean, how critical is that in a cross compiling world? Like I'm not a developer, yeah, so I can't I, talk I really about don't it, think I, it was a bigger problem with the earlier transitions, like the, especially the 68 K to Ford power PC one. Cause it was so early in the industry. We're writing stuff in a writing, uh, your your most uh, intensive algorithms in 68k assembly code yeah. was more of a thing and making assumptions about whether it's a big endian or little endian machine because you're actually dealing with these bytes on a byte by byte level and you need to know the order was more of a thing after yeah. the second time i anybody who's been writing code that assumes that you're on an intel processor is an idiot and I know people who work at bigger companies, uh, and they know that. Like Adobe is not going to get caught flat-footed, you know, and like, oh shit, we our stuff can only run on Intel. Like that's not going to happen. I'm not yeah, saying I mean, it's easy. I'm not no, saying but it's been. I'm it's not been saying, distracted. Right. I'm not saying that like somebody with something as complex as Photoshop can just open it up in Xcode and and click a checkbox and spit out a arm version of it but they're ready for that nobody nobody has like a hand tweaked c in there i hope still maybe maybe some people do but but not i mean as they're moving forward uh uh maybe not but yeah so i mean i don't so it doesn't feel to me like having arm-based processors is the motivation for this so there is some kind of but there's clearly the one one thing even if it's not assembly code the one thing that could bite some apps if maybe in the scientific community would be if you're relying on intel c compilers as opposed to the default llvm ones which should be able to anything you've been compiling through llvm through for 68k or x86 you should be able to you know just click a checkbox and spit out arm but if you're relying on arm or intel's compilers you might be in a have a bit of work ahead of you, but they're they're not the default, and that's sort of an esoteric scientific commuting thing. I don't want to <laughs> teach a computer <laughs> science class here. Um, no, but the other thing that I thought was so funny too about, and I didn't mention this, but I thought I'd save it for the podcast, was that uh, Garman had this report on Bloomberg. It was you know eight or nine paragraphs, mostly about mar- marzipan, and then the very last sentence of the report was. Sources that Apple say the company is considering unveiling its new Mac Pro at WWDC. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I had two thoughts on that. The first is what I did write, which is it better be unveiled at WWDC because it certainly doesn't look like it's coming. You know, they've said it's a 2019 thing, but they announced this initiative in April of 2017. The whole thing where they invited me and Panzerino and Ina Fried, speaking yeah. of Ina, um, and said, hey, uh, you know, we kind of made a mistake with the trash can Mac pro, although they of course didn't <laughs> call it the trash can Mac pro, but you know, the, the phrase was that we've backed ourselves into a thermal corner and did not anticipate, Oh yeah. Did not anticipate the rise of GPUs as, as you know, the, uh, the force that they've become in, in terms of intensive com- computing today. So they're like, you know, 
and they even told us then they said, Hey, and we've got a cool iMac pro or, or they didn't call it that. They said a pro iMac coming out and we think mm-hmm. this is going to be great. But we now see that there is a need for, you know, a, a, for people who that's not even good enough for, uh, a, a real Mac Pro with a modularized design, and we're working on that. And then last year they said, "Yeah, we're still working on that. It's still a thing, but it's probably it's not a twenty eight. They didn't even say probably. It's not a twenty eighteen thing. It's a twenty nineteen thing. Um, it doesn't seem like it's coming out anytime soon. There are rumors of a March twenty fifth event that Apple is going to hold at the uh, Steve Jobs theater, which is supposedly, I don't know anything about it, but supposedly focused on subscription content, uh, some kind of Apple news subscription thing, possibly the unveiling of their original video content subscription thing. Uh, that does not sound like an event where you would unveil Mac pros. Um, they they could, you know, they could just say, they don't, they don't usually in spring, they'll do laptops some years, right? Not every year. But if they don't, you know, but if they have one event in March, 25th i don't think there's going to be another event until wwdc in june and that's a that's very the right one yeah that's the yeah. right one to announce a mac pro at too it, it is weird i mean you know people this gets us back to that uh whole thing about like you know is the company can apple execute well and look i read your report card i read jason snell's summary i filled out a report card for jason Snell for six colors and i read the summary and there you know there's a lot of dissatisfaction among uh, those of us who are longtime uh, users of various platforms yeah. about Apple's consistent ability to execute. And the Mac Pro, it's weird to me. It's like if you have a deep bench and a lot of money, why can't you make this in a finite amount of time? Yeah. And they are not. And that's been the issue that was people were concerned about that with the Mac Mini, which finally shipped and seems perfectly fine. I haven't done a deep dive in it, but it seems like a perfectly fine update. Uh, it, there's something that's I Not think right there. There's a sense among people who truly want whether I, most of the personal at a personal level, the most of the people who I know who are most looking forward to a Mac Pro are developers. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, I know people who are in the graphics world and and video world who who you know are in that scheme too. But most of them, you know, I, the consensus is that the old Mac Pro was the right idea. It's a big tower. It's a big, big tower with lots mm-hmm. of cooling. And then when you open it up, there's lots of room inside <laughs> to put more stuff in. You know, if if what you need is four video cards, you can put four video cards in there. Yeah. If what you need is lots of storage, you can put lots of fast storage inside the box if that's what you want. Just build a big tower that that has lots of cooling to keep everything cool. And then you're done. And Apple. And the consensus is that the Trash Can Mac Pro was Apple getting too clever by far. By saying you don't need a big tower, here's this little thing, and it is beautiful, and it looks like nothing else any computer maker has ever made as a professional workstation. Uh, and it was too clever by far because it a lots of people I know who have one have had to replace have the video card replaced at least once because even with the, uh. the built-in video card it, it it was too hot, let alone expandability to faster and faster and hotter and hotter video cards as the years went by. And so I think the fear that these people have is all we ever wanted is for you to make a big, fast, airy tower. That's it. Just just put all of Intel's latest stuff in a big tower and call it done, which is sort of what you had before. And don't get too clever. And why in the world is it taking you two hours, two years, two hours, two years to do this unless they're getting too clever again by far because they're Apple. Apple. Did Apple get obsessed by Thunderbolt 3 based 
GPU oh, I think connections. So. Yeah. I mean, cause that seemed to be their answer was like, I don't know if they said that or if it yeah. was hinted, but it was like, look, all these are coming down the pipe. There's 40 gigabit right. per second, symmetrical, blah, blah. The answer is not to stick in bigger video right. cards because the thermal issues for, I mean, you've seen some of these cards you can get and yeah. put on the PC side and they're nuts. Um, yeah. and you just want to stick four of those into a Mac. I mean, the cool, it just, it's a whole different engineering project. So. My, my, and I'm not a developer, so I don't know if this, it doesn't make sense in developer side. It's for different uses, uh, you know, like AI uh, processing and things like that. Uh, but I, or animation, but I just, it, it felt to me like they were like, we, you just look, Thunderbolt three is the answer for now. Yeah. And maybe we'll figure out something else later, but I don't feel like that potential was realized. And I well, know you can buy Thunderbolt three connected GPUs, but yeah. I don't feel like that actually solve the the yeah. the problems people were trying to address well anyway to wrap up this segment the thing that i found ironic that i didn't write about but i'll mention here is is here's this article from german talking all about how they're going to have all yeah. these ways to run ipad apps on your mac oh and by the way we're going to come out with this fancy probably five <laughs> six seven thousand dollar professional workstation hope you enjoy running tablet apps on it Right. Like what yeah. a mixed message yeah. for one article is here's this, here's this computer that we're making because we hear you that even the iMac pro isn't pro enough for some of your needs. And, uh, you can run an iPad app on it. <laughs> that's, that's not exactly a clear message. Uh, all right. Now seems like as good a time as any to take another break. Thank, thank our next sponsor. It's a uh, molecule M O L E K U. L E unlike HEPA filters molecule destroys indoor air pollutants at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air you breathe molecule uses photo electrochemical oxidation. It's called Pico P E C O nanotechnology to eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. It's a scientific breakthrough and it enables Pico to destroy pollutants 1,000 times smaller than HEPA filters can capture. Molecule replaces 50-year-old tech antiquated technology. Imagine if your phone was the same as it was in the 1940s. That's exactly what the technology you're using to clean the air in your home. 50 years old. The last major innovation was air purification in the 1940s with the HEPA filter. That's World War II stuff. Molecule introduces breakthrough science. It's finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. It goes well beyond HEPA filtration to not just capture, but completely destroy the full spectrum of indoor air pollutants. Literally up to a thousand times smaller than the stuff a HEPA filter can trap. It's a clean design, high quality experience. It's, it's you know, I hate to say it, it's like the apple of air purifiers. It's really, really nice stuff, really nice devices that looks nice. It's not like a big, ugly thing you have to put in your house. And from the materials on the device to the sleek, solid aluminum shell to the streamlined filter subscription where replacement filters arrive at your doorstep when you need them. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry, like, is it time to get a new filter? It just shows up on a regular basis right when you're ready to replace them. It makes breathing clean air as easy and seamless as possible. It'll be better for your sleep, better for your health. And they've got research backed by the EPA. Uh, it's extensively tested by third parties and verified, and their claims on their technology have been tested by laboratories like the University of Minnesota Particle Calibration Laboratory and the University of Southern South Florida Center for Biological Defense. 
Uh, really great stuff. And they have a special deal for listeners of the show. You can save 75 bucks off your first order by going to molecule.com. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. And then at checkout, enter the code talk show. That's all you have to do. You get 75 bucks off with that code talk show. My thanks to Molecule for sponsoring the show. Uh, we got more. We've got to go into the speed round, I guess. Uh, <laughs> other topics. It's a busy week. Oh, man. Busy week. Jeff Bezos is a member of last week. So what's... Uh... Yeah. Well, how about this? Uh, the Samsung had a big new big event yesterday. Oh, yeah. It's interesting it... to watch their coverage these days, how people write about them. Well, and they're, they're in a weird space, you know, like where five years ago, I guess it's six years ago now, but it was right around 2013 where the consensus was that Apple's in trouble. You know, Steve Jobs had been dead two years. That was the peak of Apple can't do it without Steve Jobs. Samsung's eating their lunch, you know. Uh, you know, it wasn't just that quote unquote Android was going to do the iPhone and it was Samsung in particular. Uh, yeah, yeah. And nobody's really saying that anymore. Um, but they're still, you know, they're obviously a major player at a high level, at least in the U.S. I know that one of the weird things that's happened to Samsung is that they, they've been pretty much wiped out of the Chinese market. Like Chinese brands like Huawei and a couple of others have taken up the Android slack inside mm-hmm. mainland China. And Samsung, I forget what their market share, they had like 19, 18 or 19% at one point inside China for smartphones. And now it's like under 1%. It's crazy. Um, but they're obviously still a big player in in the West. They, they obviously do really good screens. They can do cameras. You know, it was interesting. I don't know. I watched the actual keynote on online and it was fascinating staging. Did you look at it at all? Yeah, I saw pictures of this. I saw your call out about that too. And I'd seen pictures and didn't understand what I was looking at. Then you mentioned that. I went back and looked and I thought it's, it's actually was my memory reaction is it's really sad when the takeaway from an announcement is, wow, they did a really good job on the stage with a very, <laughs> they were very innovative on stage. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a, uh, something I'd never seen before. Yeah. They, it, 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 the stage itself was, was a display. And then they wrapped around the ceiling above the stage. So like the presenters who came out were, you know, and sometimes they'd turn it off and they just have like a traditional display behind them. But then at certain times they, they'd use the floor and the ceiling too. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. It was pretty, pretty interesting, but they, they unveiled a bunch of new high end phones, all of them at the high end. And it's, you know, I guess I shouldn't be surprised and I don't want to look at it through too Apple focused, lens, but it's very strange to me that they introduced the ones that people are supposed to buy <laughs> are the the, yeah. S, the Galaxy S10 models, of which there's three. There's the S10e, which is smaller, 5.8 inch diagonal, um, but also it's $750. So it sort of competes against the iPhone XR, but also is missing, you know, like the XR doesn't have as many cameras as its more expensive brethren doesn't have the cool new in-screen fingerprint sensor. You have to actually touch the side button to get a fingerprint sensor. Mm. The, uh, the S10 is 6.1 inches and has a bunch of features. And then there's the S10 plus, which is 6.4 inches. Um, so they're the three phones that people will buy and and Samsung should be hoping to get people talking about but they couldn't help themselves and also showed the 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 Galaxy Fold 
which is a folding tablet that folds up to a ridiculous looking phone. Yeah, I, who is that? It's like a Homer Simpson phone. And I, I don't mean to be rude. It's just like I, and I'm sure. I mean, it, it actually looks technically very impressive. And uh, as I recall, journalists were not allowed to get hands-on time with it after the event. No. So the only time it's supposed to ship in April, or they're taking orders in April, or they ship. I don't know. It seems uh, fishy to me that they're not taking orders. And there's a lot of people have a lot of questions about the hinge on this. Like the the display is in indisputably cool. You know, that the inside display. Yeah, it's very interesting. And they're like, it'll last for thousands of foldings and unfoldings, which I, ho- I imagine is enough. It's got some very clever gears and, yeah, but and how, so forth. how, what does that, how does that, how durable is that hinge? How sturdy is it when it's open? How hard is it to close? I mean, there's a lot of ways that can go. And, you know, the, the other display, the one that you see when it's the phone is in closed mode is ridiculous. It's only 4.8 inches on a giant device. And so it has like these preposterous chin and forehead. Like it, it's clearly intended to be used open in the full size mode. And then that, that, that closed cover is there. So like if your phone buzzes, you can like look at it and see what, you know, why, why is my phone buzzing? Oh, I see. It's, you know, a phone call from Glenn or, you know, I've got email from, so and so, but it's, but it's not like a one line display. I mean, the the cover is like a high resolution display that would be just a phone on another phone, right? That's, Except which is it's yeah. a four point six inch phone on the front that another could just be a different. Phone. I, it's funny. I I'm, I keep laughing every time I look at it. It's not that it's ridiculous. I mean, you know what? I also remember was the palm, remember the Palm Folio. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The external device for your Palm, which was like a little laptop, and I. But my sense was like, well, I got a phone. And then I got another thing. Do I really want the other thing or do I want that? Like, what? what is my purpose? Again, I go back to the job. What's the job for? But it's like, do I really want – Do I is being able to fold something up instead of putting it in a sleeve that critical to me as a differentiating factor that's worth like a $1,000 premium? Well, do you watch um, Westworld? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the Westworld people have – tablets that fold, you know, that everybody's uses the same type of device and, and you can fold it up to be phone size or you can unfold it to make it bigger. But when you fold it, it, it doesn't really get that much thicker. You know, it's, it's very, very thin, Uh, you know, and obviously it's, you know, that's science fiction, but it doesn't seem that preposterous, you know, and it seems like that's what you want so that when the people on Westworld are using it without unfolding it to tablet size for a quick interaction, it's not a preposterously thick device that looks like it has a giant thick hinge. It still is very thin and that's what they can put in their jacket pocket or pants pocket or something. So it's nice, nice and tidy and folded up, but still a very usable device as a phone size held in one hand device. Yeah, it's the same, but that's because the, the resolution and intent are the same. Whether I mean, this is a low, a, a smaller screen on the front, so that it's not useless when folded up, and the actual product is inside. So the front yeah. is intended to be a little thing you use, but then so how often will you switch between it? Um, have you seen the Expanse that TV series? No, I have not seen that. It's I just shotgunned season two and three, which are great. Uh, but they have uh, the communicator there. They're different size ones. But a lot of them are a handheld thing, like a phone size thing with a clear display. And it actually holographically 
gets bigger. So mm. when you're holding it, stuff appears around it, hovering around it at the same 2D plane. I was like, oh, you know, I don't know how feasible. Like, I don't, I mean, <laughs> it's a very clever idea, but it's physically the size of a phone often. And the display is just essentially effectively moves beyond the boundaries of the thing. And I'm like, that feels like what Samsung's trying to do here is they're trying to give you the sense that it's a single device with two kinds of resolutions, but instead it's kind of a chunky device, but it's, it's just two things. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, why the, the foldable OLED display is a real thing. It is very cool, but it is clearly a demo. It's a prototype at this stage. And, it, yeah. and it's like the old Steve Jobs thing. You know, you've, I've there are dozens of stories like this where he, he had a very keen sense of that's not a product. That's a feature, you know, that's, a, or that's a technology, right? Just how but, hard is it to put an iPad in or, or a tablet in a sleeve? Well, or your back. It's That's... not, but it wouldn't be in your pocket. It would be cool to have something right. that was thin enough that if it was phone sized while pocketable and unfoldable to be or stretchable or something to be bigger when you needed it. I like I'm sure we'll we will get that. We'll get that, you know, it, it, you know, I don't know if it's 10 years out, if it's 5 years out. I don't know, but we'll get something like that. But this <laughs> this is not it. Like I do respect their interest in making something that is uh, technologically well ahead of its time. They're pushing the price envelope. It's clearly uh, got a crazy number of features in it. So it's not they're, – they're not skimping on this. This isn't a, a bad product uh, like, oh, my God, everything is hor- – look, at, oh, it's terrible. It's more like I'm mystified about it, but I, I can't say it lacks ambition. And that's yeah. neat. I mean, I know they're a multi-billion-dollar company, and they shouldn't be doing things that are so risky they can <laughs> they'll lose the farm on it. But after the events of the last few years, and various executives being indicted, and some sent to prison and then released, and all this other stuff going on, the fire, you know, their phones bursting into flames. Uh, maybe they need to do something that is over the top. Maybe it's not successful, but it's interesting. It's provocative. We'll see if there's a market for it. So I do have that to say for I, them, which I, I think is pretty positive. I think I'm intrigued that the starting price is nineteen hundred and eighty dollars. You know, I, yeah. I don't know how yeah, far yeah. that goes. That they're, they're a little sketchy on details, especially for something that's supposedly shipping in April. But I really yeah. do think that that's interesting. And you know, I I wrote before the iPhone 10 came out when there were rumors that it was going to be more expensive that I would like to see Apple make a fifteen hundred dollar iPhone and see what they could come up with, like. I, I I dispute the notion that the highest price iPhone should be priced for everybody and that it should never go above $600, $700 like it was 10 years ago mm-hmm. because I feel like phones have become too important to people that they've, they've grown in importance and, you know, we've had $2,000 laptops for years. I mean, it used to be, you know, laptops for five, $6,000, uh, and there's, I know a lot of people personally who their most used, most important computing device is their phone. So why not have a, one that costs fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars and and justifies it on technical grounds? Sure, you know if that's your most important device. So um, you know it's interesting to see somebody jump so far ahead of Apple in terms of highest starting price for a smartphone. Um, but I don't, I don't see this as being. I mean, who knows? I could be surprised and maybe it'll come out and be well-reviewed, but it looks awfully thick and they seem to go to great lengths to disguise it in closed form. 
and seems very awkward in closed form. Yeah, and they're holding it when you all the photos. I was trying. You, I saw you commented how thick it was. I looked at a lot of photos of this thing, and every picture appears to be so they can show it in as two D planar yeah, relative yeah. to the camera as possible. Yeah, uh, and I don't I don't blame them for it. But in, you know, and there is an obsession with thin. Like if this thing. Again, this is – I love the idea that a company is exploring something at the edge of what's possible that doesn't look like a technological failure. We'll find out when it hits the market if it actually succeeds. But they're, they're trying something so far on the edge. The question will be, will the potential audience for this be big enough to be worthwhile? And if so, does the thickness matter for the first release? I mean we remember the first iPad. It was kind of ridiculous. Like I look at a – I have an iPad uh, – I don't know which version. iPad 2 – we still have that works, and it seems inc- uh, absurd to me. Uh, it's so big and thick and weird. I'm like, oh my god, this is what we used to have, and that's seven yeah. years old, right? eight years old now. So maybe this is the first version, and it has enough utility that it drives a new market segment. Samsung gets people to pay two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars or more for this thing, and it sparks a huge. Investment and drive to make foldable displays, and their next one is you know thirty percent thinner in a year. But but I mean this is it's not a um, it's not an absurd idea like some other ideas in the past have been absurd. It's, no, but I think it's, it's an interesting it's a, idea, maybe too early. I think it's a very interesting idea that has a lot of future. But I feel like this particular implementation borders on the absurd and might might when we find out I more hear that yeah it might i and i just i just question their decision to me it it's a lack of corporate d- institutional discipline to be able to say we could build this now we have this we've we've you know they've created this foldable oled technology that you can fold up and when unfolded has no ugly Crease or seam in the middle. That is cool. There's no doubt that that is cool technology, but it just seems to me like the fact that they have this technology, they just couldn't stand not putting it into a product, whether it's ready to be a product or not. Whereas the discipline, and I think something that Apple historically has done very well is to have that discipline and say, okay, this is cool technology, but this isn't a good product yet. So we wait and we keep our mouths shut and go back to work and turn it into a good product. I also I don't want to um, overemphasize this, but we shouldn't underemphasize it. Samsung is, I was alluding to it before. They've gone through, uh, you know, an amazing amount of uh, of criminal accusations. There are trials to come. The uh, who was it? What one of the is the CEO? Was it put in jail? Yep. Uh, and then released on a suspended sentence. Uh, so like the company, it's actually shocking that it's not in more disarray because so many of the executives have been swept up into this and it's had to take their attention. So there is a little bit of it when you say, you know, have they been exercising corporate discipline? I'm like, I don't even know how they function yeah. given all the rest of what's going on. So they are shipping new devices and they did were able to move on from the yeah. the you know burst into flame thing, which is really difficult to recover from. So, yeah, yeah. They, uh, <laughs> which happened with phones that they put really, really big batteries in and uh, and was a disaster for the company. Yeah, they yeah. seem to have confidence in that now because a lot of these phones, if you, they, they've one thing that they'll brag about that Apple never mentions is the mega amp hours of the batteries. And oh yeah, yeah. Some of these phones that they announced yesterday have like four thousand. <laughs> I swear, like 4,000. 4,600. I think one is 4,600 uh, yeah. mega uh, ampere hours. So they seem, to, they seem to have recovered from the burst into flame. They seem to have yeah, confidence. You, can't sque- you can't squeeze it. That was the problem. You can, right. you can put a big battery in. You just can't cram it in so that well, when it's sealed, it's under pressure. The, the other That's... phone they announced yesterday, and this one is even – it's crazily enough even – 
even more vaporware-ish than the foldable one is the S10 5G. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, it, it, it like, why would you announce that now? Well, clearly because they want to be able to scream, we were first, right? Yeah. We were the first 5G uh, flagship phone. I I didn't even pick this up in the in the date. I read this this morning that they haven't even said they haven't said what it'll cost. They've said it'll come to Verizon first in the U.S. And they had mm-hmm. Verizon CEO come out and <laughs> wearing a T-shirt, which I thought was I thought was weird. Uh, Trying to do the T-Mobile CEO thing, I guess. Or? Yeah, uh, he came out and but no price and no date. They didn't haven't even really said that it's going to come out in 2019 yeah. for, like, uh, uh, first half of first half of 2019 is the promise but yeah you know, we, I, no, you know that's let's see if it not, actually comes out and that's, that's another one where i don't and the funny thing is that the guy for samsung who introduced it i don't remember his name but he was some something you know v, vp of product marketing he said something to the effect of you know, he was like going through the history of, of cellular networks where there was the original data network and we had text messaging and right. we had 2G, which, which made email and other stuff possible. And then 3G was a breakthrough that really kind of made the mobile, you know, doing the web on mobile devices was possible. And then we had 4G, which, you know, made everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said every step of the way, the first generation of phones that supported these networks were too big and thick and heavy, you know. Mm-hmm. So, well, this is the end of that. But then the next thing he says is, here's the S10 5G, <laughs> and it has a 6.8-inch screen. Like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's almost as big diagonally as the foldable one when it's unfolded. It's so much bigger than the other S10 phones. Like, so he just said, like, how can you introduce it by saying every time the the first the first phones <laughs> to support a new networking technology were too big? <laughs> here's a seven-inch phone. <laughs> Like although well, but too big is always code for too thick, right? Uh, so maybe it's not thick. I don't know, but it seems. I don't know. Ridiculous. All I see is plain again. I'm seeing it in a plain view. It's 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 a perpendicular to the plane of viewing, so I can only see right. how wide it is. Uh, I, I misstated. It's 4,500 milliampere hours yeah. in the uh, the 5G S10. The 4,100 milliampere hours in the S10 Plus, which is great. That's tons of. Tons of power. I, but then you ask for 4,500, do you need that in order to support the 5G right. chips? I don't know. For, five, I mean, this is the other thing is cellular networks have gotten ridiculously more uh, uh, power sensitive or, or power efficient for um, as the uh, data rates gone, have gone up, they become much more efficient relative to throughput. So that issue usually is backed off. I It just – seems maddening to me and if i had been at samsung and worked on the s10 regular models yeah i would be so mad to see them uh, (laughs) debut alongside this 5g model which you can't really promote 5g without implicitly slagging 4g right like 4g doesn't you know i still get maintain 4g doesn't exist because when 4G was first – or LTE was first announced and then 4G sort of got lumped into it being LG, LTE, the data rates were supposed to be like 100 megabits per second to a gigabit per second downstream. We still don't have those networks. There's some, there's some <laughs> around the world that have them. So our 4G networks, 4G LTE are really – they just – you know what they do is they redefine the sta- the name to fit whatever got built. And, uh, and remember, that got done early. So the 5G networks, nobody knows why they want 5G. No, it's a carrier thing, right? It's a total carrier thing. And they're already playing games with it. Uh, is it AT&T who's already uh, 
trying to get the 5G label like on existing phones. Like, yeah, yeah like, it's going to show up as if it were. It's like going to have a little extra thing. And I mean, it's it's sadly everything's been marketing. I mean, 3G was a distinctly different technology. There was 2G and sort of two and a half G. And 3G, and then what they were calling 4G was more like 3.5G. It was like an advancement of 3G technology. 4G did have a – there's a fundamental change. You know, 4G is the evolution to an all-IP phone network. So there is a fundamental change in it. That's how you get voice over uh, – or high-definition uh, voice. Was it voice uh, voice over LTE yeah. calling and things like that? Like, So there is a fundamental evolution in the underpinnings of the network. It is a better network. It's more efficient. It's higher throughput. You get better coverage. It supports uh, more in different kinds of frequencies. There's better uh, you know, OFDM, sub-channelization, like all these technical bits that mean you can get better performance and the carriers can roll at higher and higher speeds and they can use fre- more more in different frequencies. So you have uh, the baseband's and the phones are ridiculous in the number of frequency ranges they support mm. within one country or worldwide. All of that's great. But the 5G thing is like, ours is 1G fast. I mean, yeah. Trump tweeted today. You saw this, right? No, I did not. I, oh, I was Trump at the doctor, said, remember? We needed to be the first to deploy 5G and even 6G networks. I'm <laughs> well, not, of course, of not course making this up. Right. Of, of course, course he did. did. That's the way his mind works did. immediately. Yeah. So, he so has no idea. 6G. He has no freaking idea what any of this yeah. means. And of course. But he's the best marketing person, right? He's like, 5G is clearly one better. Right. And 6G. <laughs> Like we're so far away from widespread <laughs> no, deployment of it. Of course, he wants yeah, six or seven G. But isn't that great? I mean, it is like a parody too. I want five G and even six G technology in the United States as soon as possible. It is far more powerful, faster, and smarter than the current standard. American companies must step up their efforts or get yeah. left behind. I just ran the speed <sighs> test app here on my phone. Wow. I turned off Wi Fi just to see what am I getting. I get pretty good, pretty good Verizon service here in Philadelphia. I got just tested it seventy two point six megabits per second down. Five oh, point five point five up, but usually yeah. I'm in the basement as I record this. Twenty five. Oh, that's great. I mean, the networks have gradually gotten faster getting to it, but it's like yeah. even if a hundred megabits per second, the the target was one gigabit per second if you were standing still, basically, yeah. and a hundred well, megabits per second if you're driving sixty miles an hour. Yeah, and and you know the other thing, and the one thing that Apple. It never seems to lose sight of is that it's the holistic experience, the whole experience of using the phone that matters mm-hmm. the most. And of course, faster networking is better than slow networking. It controlled for all other variables, of course. And slower, you know, faster ping times are better than slower ping times. Of course, latency is, you know, it's not good. But battery life is an issue. Coverage, cellular coverage is an issue. And what happens as you hand off from tower, you know, there's, it's the whole day long, weeks long, year or two year or three year long experience of using a phone that matters the most. And, you know, the 5G stuff is, you know, come on. It's it's such a carrier. It's just the carrier's obsession with well, that is their thing. And they would love for the most important thing in, uh, Jane consumer who's in the market for a new phone to be most worried about the network as opposed mm-hmm. to, to the device. Like, Oh, you know, all they ever talk about is how great the network is. And you know what? All people want is for the goddamn phone to work and be fast. And that's yeah. it. And I have gigabit internet at home. I've had it for, Oh, and to have a bill, now? have a, have a bill that is <laughs> like your $50 phone bill should be $50, not $75. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, uh, I have a, so I have gigabit internet and, uh, I've had it for years, and the thing you experience when you have a super fast network, uh, and it's you know, and often I'll do speed tests. It'll be six or seven hundred megabits per second 
up and down. So it's, it's really, they're not lying. It's actually, you know, sort of gigabit. But the thing is, uh, the internet doesn't really run at gigabit speeds. Very few things can transfer anywhere near that fast. So there's a point at which really, uh, with the, with the, what the uh, carriers are saying when they say 5G is so important, it's the next thing is they're saying what they should be saying, I think, and I'm not a marketing person, is you're going to be able to get high-definition streaming video wherever you are, whenever you want, and it's going to be part of your plan. You know, we're going to have five, in, in right. your 5G plan. You're going to be able to download any file, anything, download a five gig, uh, download a, a high-definition movie to your phone uh, in, in uh, five minutes. That's what 5G promises. That's something that people could act upon, and it's a it's something that tells you something. Yeah, just saying five G is faster. It's because they don't know; they can't promise anything. For them, there's great network improvements they'll get out of it, and that's terrific. But it certainly doesn't it doesn't translate into that. Um, you know, my my great grandmother apparently used to say something along the lines of, you know, essentially, uh, so so how rich do you need to be? Are you going to eat five meals a day? And, <laughs> and that's right. what I feel about with five G. It's like how fast do you really need it? If you know, I only need if I had consistent three or four G speeds, it'd right. be great. I don't need five G. Right, and there's so many things, and I know five G is meant to address this, and and each subsequent le- level of this of cellular networking technology has gotten better at it. But for example. Uh, one thing that would be more meaningful to me, way more mm. meaningful, maybe more frequently, is when I'm in some place very crowded. I mean, I live in Center City, yeah. Philly, so it's already pretty dense. But Manhattan is usually pretty dreadful for cell phone coverage. Uh, or you go to Disney World or something like that. Like being able to get the same speeds that I normally get, but get it when I'm amidst thousands of people or at a concert or a sporting event, right? I go to see the Sixers or the Yankees or something like that, and there's – 50,000 people in Yankee Stadium and they're yeah, yeah. all taking pictures of the same thing and trying to upload them or text them at the same time. If I got the same speed I normally got, but it worked better when 25,000 other people were using their phones at the same time, that's a meaningful upgrade. But it's yeah, and 5G will. I mean, 5G, right. uh, 802.11ax, the new Wi Fi standard that's starting to sort of roll out a tiny bit, I think, uh, that is all about how do you get a bazillion mobile devices to talk efficiently and better use all the spectrum that's available. And and 5G has a lot of similar principles. It's yeah. There's tons of devices. We need to make sure we, sh- we can handle the load, have micro cells, break it all out, and just deal with the capacity. Because what you're describing, I mean, Yankee Stadium is not unique anymore. Like there's Yankee Stadiums in every part of the country every day. Uh, during commutes or in downtowns yeah. or wherever. So it's it's a fundamental problem. And again, I think if they said 5G is going to be incredible because you could be, you know, they show somebody, they, they have John Gruber, close tight up or tight shot on John Gruber. They pull back. John is in a stadium and he's uploading, you know, 4K video. And then you see everyone else is uploading 4K video and it's like 5G. That's what it offers. That's a great ad, right? I think I'm I'm not an ad person. But no. that, that tells people something that frustrates them today that they'll be able to do. Well, I, I'm not. When when do you? I, there, there's the, the, the Apple related note on 5G is that it there, it apparently is caught up in their ongoing legal squabble with Qualcomm. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Where Qualcomm is like the leader or the only source for 5G stuff, but I don't mm. think I Apple has been. You know, the the original iPhone shipped when quote unquote, most smartphones were already on 3G and it wasn't 3G and it was like the number one knock against it and it was fine. And the 
at other phones went to LTE or quote unquote 4G, whatever they marketing wanted to call it. And the iPhone was at least a year late to that, you know, when the gadget sites had on a daily basis had 4G phones. I, I think even if Apple's relationship with Qualcomm was hunky dory, I really doubt that this year's phone would be iPhones would be 5G. I, it's just the nature of Apple to, you know, to not get on board quickly for scaling reasons, you know, because they, they don't, you know, they, they, it's not like they're going to ship a weirdo iPhone 5G in small quantities like Samsung's doing with the S10. They're going to do it for all of the flagships or they're going to wait. And, you know, the power efficiency thing is real that they're, you know, the early versions are not going to be as power efficient as subsequent ones. And Apple tends to wait for the subsequent ones. (laughs) Well, it'll be super power efficient because there won't be any 5G cell base stations out there. So it'll right. all be 4G using the previous right. power efficiency. But no, but I agree. I think Apple tends to wait for the networks to mature to a point uh, that it makes sense for them to promote it as a technology because otherwise their customers are unhappy that they're not seeing promised, you know, speeds and, and 5G you know, icons of their phone, mm. uh, which makes sense because why, why release a 3G phone if the phone only says 2G on it all the time? Yep. All right, let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor of this episode, our good friends at Casper. Casper makes sleep products designed by humans for humans. Casper's products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. Look, you spend one third of your life sleeping. I spend at least half my life sleeping, to be honest. I'll steal the joke. I saw there was an Amex ad. uh, Tina Fey did where she, I don't know why people are buying a mattress. And she, she said, Tina Fey in the ad says, you spend two thirds of your life in bed and eat all of your meals there. So why, why not get a good one? And they looked at her like, what? Uh, I love sleeping though. I swear it is. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do in life. I say it all the time when I, I'm talking about Casper, why not get a great mattress? And they make really, really great mattresses and all sorts of other, uh, sleep-related products like sheets and comforters and pillows and all the fancy stuff you put on your bed. It's just great stuff. They've got the original Casper mattress. Back in the old days, they only had one type of mattress, the original. And it's still there. It's still great. It combines multiple forms of supportive memory foam for a quality sleep surface, just the right amount of sink and bounce, a breathable design so you stay cool all night long, Uh they also offer now two other mattresses, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. The Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. In other words, the Essentials cost a little less. Still a great mattress. The Wave is sort of their deluxe model. comes with quote-unquote white glove uh, installation. All of them come in because uh, they're memory foam these mattresses they come in these boxes that you you can't believe there's like a queen or even a king size mattress in a box this small um really it's worth buying one just to just to open the box <laughs> it's a lot of fun uh but they have all sorts of other products like they said pillows sheets everything you need for a better sleep experience and it's all affordable because casper cuts out the middleman and deals directly to you they've got the engineers who design these mattresses they make them they put all this stuff together and they ship them directly to you with no retail middleman in between. And how do you buy an internet mattress? How do you, you never tried it? You never even touched it. You never sat on it. You never jumped on it, bounced on it, whatever. They've got a hassle-free return policy. You got a hundred nights 
risk-free. Sleep on it for three months, and if you don't like it, they'll take it back, no questions asked, give you all of your money back. They've got free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. So even to return, totally free, don't like it, send it back. Uh, it's really great. 100 nights. I've got We've got a bunch of Casper mattresses here at uh, Casa del Gruber. We love them. It's a great product. They last for years. We've got one, uh, I think the one in my son's bedroom now. It's been, it, he, we've had this mattress in the family ever since, uh, ever since Casper started sponsoring the show. It's like brand new. Here's the deal for you. 50 bucks towards select mattresses by visiting Casper, dot com slash talk show. And just use that same code talk show. No, the just talk show at checkout and you'll save 50 bucks towards select mattresses. That's the, and the special code is talk show. I have to tell you terms and conditions apply. I don't know what those terms and conditions are, but they do apply. Oh, what else? This is the real speed zone. We got a bunch of little things to talk about. You, I, you've got this in the show notes. I don't know what you're talking about, to be honest. Is tw- Twitter's new threaded approach? And the oh, end have you not seen flights. this yet? No. Oh, well. you're gonna, th- th- you know, Jack Dorsey, um, uh, Twitter's flooded with Nazis and fascists and abuse. And he's like, what if, what if we remove likes? Is that, that what they're doing? Really, that heart really bothers me, he says. What if we got rid of that? That would probably solve problems. What if we threaded and nested conversations so it's easier to follow a conversation? That would produce more understanding among people and less harassment and abuse. So, yeah, they're, they're trying stuff. And I haven't seen it yet. I've seen some screen captures. Uh, but some people are apparently getting this rolled out in some uh, early testing. Or if you click a See, link, I think it may show I, up as an option. I almost never use Twitter's own software. I use just use TweetBot for everything. So I'm like in bizarro <laughs> Twitter universe where this stuff doesn't doesn't exist. Yeah, I've, it's funny. I have switched to I use Tweetbot on my phone, uh, but I use Twitter on my Mac because I find it yeah. a better workflow. And there's some things you can see in Twitter. There's some interesting yeah. my wife does it uh, statistics way. things. Yeah, it's very there's certain in certain interactions I've discovered yeah. Tweetbot won't show me some replies and Twitter yeah. will. Yeah. So I go back and forth. But yeah, I, um, I mean, I shouldn't say I never use it. I have. I, I, there's magic powers that I get as a blue checkbox person. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. that are there's certain features. I, I have to say, in my defense, I never asked for it. I got I got my blue checkbox as a verified Twitter user in the the aftermath of the Matt Honan oh, hacking yeah. years ago, where they you were very early though, and you had a bunch of users yeah, early on, so they kind of went through and verified people who'd write they, and were they, subject to it. it it seemed like, you know, yeah, they, they, I was at risk of being targeted in the way Matt Honan was, uh, you know, probably, yeah, probably started, true. I mean, yeah. I think, I think to Matt and my Twitter history and, and our background and the number, I'm sure algorithmically it was like, yeah, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's a target. But, uh, yeah, you, but anyway, I get, I get notifications that other people can't get. It's like, it, it's like a, a level of, notifications of tweets I might find interesting. Like I can't turn on every time somebody likes my tweet because I'd get right. too many. I have too many followers, but I have the option of only seeing it for people who I follow. I forget there's. A, yeah. Yeah. There's a great, some of those are, I have a blue check mark. So I see some of those and some though they've now rolled out to everybody that used to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's like, the, so I have, you can say, don't show me like people who haven't confirmed a phone number or people who haven't uh. changed their default avatar. There's a few of those. I found when, um, back when, uh, Eric Trump responded angrily to me about something and my Twitter was 
Yeah, I know. This is, my kids are still – this is how I impressed my children. They were very happy about that. Um, and my tweet mentions were, were uh, Trashfire and TweetBot, yeah. which can't use Twitter filtering. It can only uh, yeah, accept yeah. the raw API timeline. Uh, I went into Twitter.com and I turned on a couple of those boxes. So I was like, don't show me notifications from people who uh, haven't changed their default avatar. And all of a sudden, like – there were thousands of people tweeting at me for like two days solid. And I saw like two of them Yeah, because everybody else was, and I also had low quality filter enabled. So the thing is most people who engage in abuse and whatever have not done the basics or they uh, follow very few people or they only tweet at people who don't follow them and Twitter will read those signals. So if you check the right te- check boxes and you use a Twitter client, you wind up with a lot less noise. So most of the time TweetBot is great. It's just when I, there's a, a flood of response. Yeah. Um, I tweeted something the other day about uh, Seattle. There's, the Seattle Times runs this regular feature. Uh, X restaurants opened and X closed. And the other day they had a headline like 43 restaurants open in Seattle, 19 are closing. And I tweeted the 43 saying the hellhole that Seattle has become or the, you know, the devastating nightmare we live in with the high minimum wage we passed. The people found that funny. Yeah. So I got thousands of retweets of it, whatever. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, and I wound up having again to use Twitter because I couldn't yeah. cope with the flood of stuff coming in. And then I, I can I got, go back to tweet. I got one like that in the last year where there was some, one of these incidents with, with gun violence and, Oh yeah. Yeah. And I tweeted, uh, impetuously something to the effect of to somebody i wasn't it wasn't it was like an at it was a reply or something and i just wrote uh, something about we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna take away your guns i don't know I, I, that's not even my politics i actually don't support taking away lawful gun ownership sure. uh, uh but somebody so i don't i've never even figured out who retweeted it but somebody with a large number of conservative followers retweeted it and i my my twitter mentions were garbage oh. for like and i thought you know what i shouldn't have tweeted that i actually and i was like this is what i get i actually felt like this is my punishment i can't use twitter right, you know right. it's like and, but <laughs> like 72 hours later it was still like three whole days later it was still a a, a fire hose of garbage uh I, I know thought, exactly who retweeted you, and really? I'm not going to say their name. Yep, because they do this. They actually have a little – they're a, huh. a prominent conservative who used to be somewhat reasonable, and uh, there are plenty of reasonable conservatives. I have friends who are conservatives. I'm not playing some kind of political I, thing. There are people who exist to be trolls who happen to huh. be conservatives, just like there are liberals. This guy went from an interesting thinker to a troll, and he can be very cruel and, and nasty. I had to block him because I would tweet something very hmm. anodyne or very normal and he would retweet it with comment and mm. his and i would get Turn his fanatics, yeah. so i know exactly but he's also got a little bit of an intersection with uh with the mac world so i think uh, or has an interest in it so he follows people like you and me um that's supposed to there's mm. a, a a fellow who i'd say is like the exact opposite is brad delong who's a, a well-known economist a very thoughtful person does not engage in trollery right. and he's like the inverse of this other guy mm. it's also i follow mac, brad DeLong, mac yeah. interested yeah also uh, brad DeLong, long time during fireball reader actually yeah, um, if you listen to see great, great guy. I've, no, I've read his stuff for years and years and years. Uh, and the other thing that I run into, and I, I think even like in that gun thing, it, people think it's me is they they conflate me with Jonathan Gruber, the MIT economist who is the oh. quote unquote architect of Obamacare. <laughs> yes, yes, and but he generally goes by Jonathan, and I realize that a lot of people yeah. don't realize that J O H N is almost never a Jonathan. You know, it's something that we Johns know. 
like Maltz and I will go on at length about it. If you're oh a JOHN, there's only I've only met like a handful of JOHNs who are actually Jonathans. Yeah. Uh, JON is the diminutive form of Jonathan. And that's who the Gruber, who's the Obama architect is. But when that whole thing erupted five, six, seven years ago about him saying something pretty stupid on stage, the way it came out of his mouth that, yeah. that, 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 the people were, you had to kind of, I forget what he said, but it kind of insinuated that people are too stupid to understand what was good for them about Obamacare or something. <laughs> I remember, yeah. It's but, not oh my God. But he's not on Twitter. <laughs> and so a lot of people would guess, well, maybe at Gruber is this guy. And they'd see it's of somebody with a lot of followers whose name is John Gruber. And oh my God, did I get a lot of those? Oh my God. That's. I used to write back to those people though at the time I sometimes I would just have fun with them and just say like ridiculous like under the guise and I f almost feel bad because I was <laughs> I've never claimed to be the other John Gruber but I would just write back to them and say ridiculous things like you know this is really just the first step we're going to you know we're going <laughs> to we're going to have everybody get their we're going to have everybody get their health care at the post office and, and <laughs> There's just something ridiculous like that. Oh like once God. we can get everybody on Medicare for all, we'll just put all the doctors in the post office and we'll save money. You know, we'll save tremendous amounts of money at the federal level. Oh my God. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but I have to, I try to avoid that now. Anyway, getting rid of the hearts on Twitter. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yes. You know what? We'll we, were talk everything. we were talking about Square earlier, Jack Dorsey's other company. And he, he did a bunch of interviews a month ago. Um, uh, I forget why, but you know, who's making the media rounds? He did a really good interview on the Bill Simmons podcast. You probably don't listen because it's mostly a sports podcast, but Bill Simmons did a tremendous job interviewing Jack Dorsey. I'll put this in the show notes. It's not sports related at all. I guess they touch a little bit on like NBA Twitter, meaning the, the subset of of Twitter that's you know likes to talk about the NBA. Um, Jack Dorsey is a, a big uh, Golden State Warriors fan. Ah, uh, okay. But one of the things that came up was the difference between Square and Twitter. And he said this in a couple interviews, not just with Bill Simmons, but um, he said something to the effect of, we have to be super careful about everything we do at Square because it's money and people will get upset if we, you know, <laughs> we handle this wrong. And so many people had the came, I mean, I can't take credit for it, but everybody who listened to this had the same thought of, oh my God, what if you did treat Twitter that way though? And just, you know, oh my God. like, you know, what if you were as careful about what you allowed to happen on Twitter as you were on Square? Like if we, what, if we charged a penny a tweet, you'd suddenly get rid of the yeah. Nazis and the... This is what leads to regulation is industries right. accidentally confess that because right. they're not regulated, that they do anything they want. And people right. are like, we're oh, we're well, super I'm really not in favor of regulation. But now that you said that. Yeah, we don't do any experiments at Square, you know, like this whole like, well, what if we let Nazis have, you know, a platform? Oh, you got, I, yes, I have to highlight this thing. There's a thing that Pinterest did. Pinterest has been actually trying to create uh, – like more sensible communities in a way that YouTube and, and others are not and Twitter are not. And what they said is, uh, I saw this formulated uh, just today. It was there's freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. So hmm. yes, there's a bunch of forums in which you should be allowed to say whatever you want, but you're not a you're not allowed to you're not given a, a, a the right to a platform, especially a privately owned one. So 
there's people trying to suppress your ability to speak in public fora, and that's unconstitutional. And there's issues about whether it's you know hate speech and inciting violence and all that. But it's like there is no right on Pinterest to have access to Pinterest's audience, right? So I think Pinterest now, like we came up with the anti-vax stuff. It's not that you can't pin anti-vax things in your own board, but you can't promote them in the way that you can in other platforms now. Yeah, I I, I knew you. Were, I, I saw the same thing and hadn't read it, but I I knew that it was going to you know tie back into a topic we talked about <laughs> earlier in the show. That was an anti-vaccination thing, and that they've yeah. taken concrete steps to keep that anti-vaccination. Honestly, I, I I feel safe describing it as disinformation from spreading at at the scale that pit, that stuff can spread on Pinterest because they realize it is collectively not it, it it's against the interests of society at large. Yeah, I was just I just read a story too. Somebody dug it up. It was like on the fiftieth anniversary of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine oh, getting yeah. approved, and and like the t- it was like they just talked about how it was it, it was like another you know. VJ day or, or VE day, you know, you know, it was like a day when people like went out in the streets to celebrate and, and party yeah, like it was yeah. New Year's Eve because it was, you know, and, and you know, I, I don't know anybody. I don't, I realize that our generation, like me and you, like, I don't know anybody who had polio of my peers, but my family, you know, like my, my, my grandparents did by, my, my, my mom's dad had a brother who I think died from polio. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know any, I mean, it was, you know, it, it 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 was crazy, you know? I mean, your kids could get measles and maybe they'd die and it was nothing you could do about it because they were going to get it, you know? Uh, and then all no, of a sudden... Outrageous. Yeah, and then, you know, this terrible disease that even if you survived it, you know, would could leave you, uh, you know, severely handicapped for life, you know? We, we, you know, we've got a thing. We can just give this to every kid and they'll never get it. <laughs> and <laughs> the science uh, backs it up, you know, the largest clinical study at the time that anybody had ever conducted. And it was conclusive that, you know, this, this is going to work. And it was uh, great. And I just can't imagine like so many of the people who were of that generation are, you know, because of their age that are gone now. But if, if you could just listen, if you could, they could just come back here and slap some sense <laughs> in people like, <laughs> I think I think you could. There's a great book I read a couple years ago called "Get Well Soon" by uh, Jen Wright. She's uh, Jen Ashley Wright on Twitter. Incredibly funny and uh, wonderful person. And the book is a hilarious account of history's worst plagues. It's written in a very friendly <laughs> and delightful manner, and she recounts all of it. It's really it's very interesting. It's much more approachable because it's not this deadly, either uh, a dry or um, hor- horrifying thing. She's kind of a little bit of a do 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 tone about it, which lets you get through it. But it is it, – uh, it gives you some insight into what the, – the, the scope of things we used to go through and then terrifying things like the, the 1918 flu uh, that killed so many people and we still don't know exactly why or if it would recur in that form and whether we have any way to protect against it. Uh, but it's – I think it's a great – I don't know. I really, I, I really enjoyed reading about plagues. Um, but it, it just lets you see the scope of what's happened across human history and what we've managed to avoid for, you know, 60 something years, 70 something years yeah. for the most part. All right. The lightning round continues. All right. The big hack Bloomberg's, uh, blockbuster story from, I think it was October, maybe probably oh November. God. I put I that keep, in the notes for so you because you I, keep bringing it up. I know. I, I keep doing a thing where every time I mention a report from Bloomberg or Business Week, I, I put an asterisk in right away and then include a boiler now boilerplate footnote remarking that uh, Bloomberg has since since that's published offered no evidence backing up their story, but yet have not retracted the story. 
which to me is an untenable position. They either need to retract it or show further evidence that no, we were right all along and everybody else who's tried to back this up and hasn't found any evidence of it whatsoever, of any of the crap that we said happened, happened. And that, you know, (laughs) I I don't get it. I had more conversations with people after that story came out and, and since when it comes up, uh, you know, usually like off the a conversation with other journalists, we're just chatting or, you know, sometimes publicly on Twitter, sometimes privately. And we're all just like, I don't I don't understand it because Bloomberg has high journalistic standards. I don't suspect them or any of the reporters of engaging in in a, a fraud or fabulism. And yet this is a ridiculous story and no reporter has managed to match it. And there's nope. no way that Bloomberg had the only access to the large number of people. And after the story came out, some sources, as you know, even said, this isn't exactly what was going on. Um, so it does feel like the story is wrong and they don't understand it's wrong. And I can't believe they don't understand it's wrong. It seems like they dug themselves into such a pit and they got such pushback, both from the company's profile and other journalists and experts in the field. Uh, that they just didn't know what to do about it. The, the thing I'll say this is closest to is The Guardian wrote a story, is it two years ago, about um, WhatsApp, and they talked about a – I remember this. Yeah, a technical flaw. And at the end, I think like 150 computers or security experts wrote a letter to The Guardian urging them to retract it. And I still think it took them six months yeah. to essentially rewrite the story. I'm not even sure they fully retracted it. It was just it, – it was in error. I mean it wasn't totally wrong, but the – way in which they described the scope of the problem was a totally inaccurate. And it was shocking given the Guardian's normal uh, technical coverage. So I don't understand. There's something so wrong here, I'm sure. So what I could guarantee you, John, is there are people researching the Bloomberg side of the story, not at Bloomberg, who are going to write a remarkable 10,000-word story that is going to explain how what Bloomberg did wrong here. Yeah. It's, it has to come out eventually, but I like to keep reminding people of it because it is, it's too long. And, and I really do feel like Bloomberg's goal is let, let's just hope everybody forgets about this because we don't want to yeah. bring this up again. It's the, it's the word, like, and of course, you know, we both cover Apple and write and like Apple stuff. So it sounds like this is, I never, I always like to say, I'm not defending Apple here. Apple defended itself very well, or Amazon or the other companies yeah. uh, uh, affected by it. But it's more like, uh, I've, I haven't seen a story that had as many credible people involved in it that is so obviously wrong as this one. In I don't even remember the last one that's if one ever ex- approached this scope. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's plagiarists and fabulous, but they were writing about stuff that wasn't very important. Yeah. Um, the, the Theranos story is the closest one, but it's the flip side. It's like what Theranos was doing was as bad as – what almost as bad as what Bloomberg was reporting on, yeah. but Theranos was true. Everything that uh, well, the and Wall the other, the other was the other downside to this is the the boy who cried wolf aspect, where the basic kernel of their story that the Chinese state was manipulating their access to the Chinese supply chain yeah, to yeah. get stuff in all sounds plausible and very worrisome given the world's. Uh, reliance on the Chinese supply chain. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, seemingly credible reports that Huawei in particular is really just a state-owned front 
and not just you know like the U.S. has banned Huawei phones from being sold on military bases, so that yeah, you know yeah. you can't you know and and they really don't have much of a presence in the U.S. consumer market. Uh, Huawei also makes, and speaking of 5G, they make yeah. cellular networking technology, including 5G stuff. And that, you know, uh, the U.S. is taking steps to say, well, we, you know, legally we're going to say we don't want their stuff forming the backbone of the U.S. 5G network because we literally I, don't trust it. But as it, our countries around the world, so the U.S. is saying that, it, and as our countries across right. Europe and elsewhere as well, right? And yet, you know, having this story out there of, hey, the Chinese. Uh, state intelligence services manipulating the supply chain. Oh, that was BS. Uh, everybody says that was, you know, Bloomberg ran a story about it. It was BS. I'm sure this next one is BS, you know, like, yeah, yeah. There's it a, feels like disinformation. It's yeah. not, it's just something went terribly wrong. And I yeah. do believe we will, we will find out. And I believe it's taken this long to find out because people are cracking sources inside Bloomberg and trying to figure out some of the external sources. And, and yeah. I, I expect we will get a big story in a, in a vanity yeah. fair or New Yorker yeah. magazine or uh, something like that. Not New yeah. Yorker, uh, New York magazine. Yeah. And basically the one thing I know, I, I, you know, I don't have good sources at Amazon, but I have sources at Apple and basically, you know, uh, it, they did Apple's, Apple's vehement defense was not a surprise to Bloomberg, you know, that they, and, and the only surprise really was that Apple did not expect them to publish the story when they did, because they knew they were working on it. They had been asked for comment. They had been presented with, Hey, we, we, we're going to say X, Y, and Z. What do you have to say about it? And they had done, you know, they did after the story came out, they redoubled and did, let's do it all over again. And it, it make sure that not, there's not a, just a truth to this because my yeah. God, look at what they've wrote. But you know, they gave the adamant defense to Bloomberg, and so did Amazon before it was published. And Amazon and and Bloomberg's more or less was, oh, of course, Apple and Amazon are going to say that. You know, they really, really disregarded the plain strenuousness of their denials oh, yeah. under the guise traded, of yeah. yeah, publicly traded companies making statements that strenuous or that yeah. that extreme, especially with Tim Cook saying it, yeah. he could go to jail for that if yeah. he were lying. It's yeah. not it's not like he can say it and and brush it yeah. off and executives have. It would be yeah. seen as manipulation of the stock price and and uh you know, he could be forced out as uh, CEO and barred yeah. from serving in publicly held companies, things yeah. like that. Uh, all right. Another one. Here's a story you wrote, published on December 31st, and criminally, oh, yeah. criminally, I still haven't linked to it from Daring what? Fireball. This has fallen under the guise, this oh. is something that happens at Daring Fireball, yeah. where I either link to something when it's hot off the presses, or I file it away and think, I'm going to link to that when, I'm, when I need something. And I've had that with this one in my back pocket. Now this is criminal, because it's, <laughs> here we are, it's February 21st. Oh, yeah, it came out at a funny time. I forgot about that. Uh, right. Well, it was New Year's Eve, which isn't yeah. exactly great, but it's the old guard of Mac indie apps has thrived for more than 25 years. And you wrote this feature for Macworld on uh, the ones I remember were BB Edit from Bare Bones and P Calc from uh, James Thompson at uh, TST, no, TLA. TLA. Yeah. TLA uh, who else was in the story? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Fetch. Right, fetch, and then also Lemke Software's uh, Thorsten's Lemke's uh, graphic converter. Graphic converter, yeah. Which and I was... picked those four. So BB Edit put out a thing about, hey, we have merch for our 25th anniversary, and I was like, oh my god. And then of course it's more than 25 years technically, and yeah. um, whatever. And I, I'm like, you know, it'd be fun to look back at this because I, I routinely every day I use graphic converter, BB Edit, 
pcalc every day and i and some other software i think that i use that some of it has been around for more than 25 years but it's changed hands once or twice but mm-hmm. it's still developed and i'm like what are the indie like indie developers still a handful of people sometimes there were a lot more people in the company and then shrunk or some are been very consistent all along like uh, torsten lemke uh, torsten lemke is um it's mostly him now and uh, he has contractors who work. In the past, I think he had a little more, like, full-time-ish help. Uh, but this is software that is basically I – and mean, you worked on BB Edit. It's it's not the same piece of software, no. but it's kind of the – the intent is the same after a quarter of a century. And the, most of the people involved – and the people involved are primarily making their living for it. Uh, I should say, uh, at Fetch, it's uh, uh, Jim, uh, whose last name I'm Matthews, Jim Matthews. Thank you, Jim Matthews, who won on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the story of how he funded. <laughs> right, he was, story. he was a professor at uh, Dartmouth? Or? Yeah, he's on staff and he wrote this song. Oh. My dad calls me, he says, you've got to turn on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I said, why? He said, he said Jim Matthews is on it. And I turn it on and I watch him make a very smart decision to stop because he didn't, he knew he didn't know the answer and walk away with a half a million dollars. Uh, so Jim Matthews, he now works for, uh, uh, the company that makes, uh, Jira, um, uh, Atlassian. Hmm. Uh, he's, uh, but he, so Fetch has become a little more of a side project. It's still developed. It's still updated, but it's no longer in the same kind of active forward motion. But I would still, you know, it's still out there and there's people who love it. And if you've been using it with FTP or SFTP, it doesn't support all the new cloud stuff in it the way Transmit does. Yeah. Uh, but it is still a piece of software that is totally up to date. It's ready for Mojave. And it was a big part of his life for a big chunk of his life. Yeah, I uh, I remember using it. It was before. So now it, it, I've been using I was using Fetch back before the um, – there's like a standard open uh, Apple event. I think it's the ODB editor suite. I forget what oh, ODB yeah. stands for, but it's a way that you can set an FTP client like Fetch or Interarchy or Transmit to say, for this type of file, when I double click it, don't download it. Instead, open it in yeah, BB Edit. And yeah. BB Edit opens a temp file. And then when you yeah. save, all you have to do to, to, to make an edit is just save the file, Command S. And then it sends the Apple event back to your FTP client, and then your FTP client will update the version on the software. I was doing that before ODB even existed because I didn't want to use – I was so appalled by using Emacs or VI in a terminal window that I was editing my computer science stuff on a Unix system back in the 90s before this even existed where I would just uh, make a local copy – save it. And then I, I had to do one more step. I had to drag it back into the fetch window and say, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, I hated that. Yeah. overwrite, you know, do you want to overwrite the file? Yes. And so I was editing files, you know, on a remote server in BB edit before it even existed. And I was just thinking, you say transmit. I remember, I think transmit came out around. It's not quite, it's very, it's close. I looked it up. It's like 91. No, I 80? think transmit was like 97 uh, or 98. I'm sorry, 90, oh, I'm sorry. I'm doing the math wrong. Yeah, so yeah. it'd be like 20 it's, it's, years. Yeah, so there's, but it's really, I mean, I, but I remember I when, wish. so transit at 20 years old, yeah. transmit. I'm, I'm using the original, remember the original name was transit, and they oh, ran, yeah. panicked, the cable and Steve ran into like a trademark conflict, and they'd already built up all this goodwill around the name transit. <laughs> as their totally name and they had the truck icon already and 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 this great branding and they didn't know what to do because they're just two kids who were getting started and and then it like the i forget who i probably cable but one of them came up with well what if we just call it transmit and they realized not only with is that verbally very similar it starts with the same four letters it actually fits their 
their the branding even better. <laughs> it's actually the better oh word God. over the two. But anyway, I still think it's of I thing. still think of Transmit as the upstart. <laughs> it's the new FTP client, <laughs> right? I know. Yeah. It's uh, 20 year, it's 20 years old and has been in constant development, it's uh, but it's it's the new one. I and I use I mean Graphic Converter is my go-to app partly because of its batch processing. I had to do yeah. something the other day with a uh, I was doing a take control book and I needed to do this thing where I was resizing it, make sure it was retina and the resolution and blah, you know, the usual thing. And I was like, yeah, I can write an Apple script. I could do automator. And I'm like, no, 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 wait. I just need to do a crack open graphic converter and I do a batch thing in there. And I just am like drag and drop and click. And it's, it's just fantastically useful. I mean, right. it was built as a file conversion, you know, it's graphic yeah. converter and it supports, I forget what he's at, but like oh. over 200 formats or something. Right. And, and it's it, like, right. at yeah, a, at a I time- have this idea. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. At, well, at a time when most apps support the graphic files that the OS supports, you know, like Graphic Converter did all the hard work of actually having the native support for these formats built in. And that's why it has, you know, this list of formats that's well above and beyond what, what the system supports yeah. natively. Well, well, and I was having this conversation with my, my wife about something we'll talk about in a minute, uh, which is uh, putting something away archivally for centuries. And she was like, will someone be able to read this movie file that you're putting on a USB stick in hundreds of years? And I said, yes. <laughs> I'm so confident because I won't be here. But it was partly because graphic converter, right? Like in 200 years, I will be able to run graphic converter and open like a 1960s image format. In 200 years, there'll be – There'll be somebody like Graphic Converter for movie files as well. Like I'm not concerned for a non-DRM protected files, but it is it is Graphic Converter that gives me the hope for the future that we'll still be able to uh, like open Libre. If you need to open an AppleWorks file from you know version 1.0, I think Open Libre has filters in it. Really? To open it in a modern. Yeah, I had to do that. Someone asked for advice. They found a bunch of old disks. I think that's the one. Um, but, you know, if it's just straight, if it's just a conversion, it's an encoding thing, there's all the uh, gra- graphic converter. The joy of it is they don't have to change it. Like he wrote some formats in the nineties that are never, will never have to be changed. Just has to upgrade the, you know, the frameworks that still works right. within the latest OS. But anyway, um, and what's funny is then I got email from some developers. Nobody really like been out of shape, but like, you know, I've been around for 25 years, like plum amazing pop care. Uh, uh, the the uh, the thing that predated keycaps. Yeah, that's uh, it's still being developed. Same people. Um, and so I was like, you know, I can only fit so much in. You're totally awesome, also. But I try to pick like four examples yeah. and whatever. And I'm like, I could probably write one that featured. That's the amazing thing to feel to say. Maybe there's 15 pieces of Mac software developed by independent developers who are still working on it, maybe sometimes part-time, maybe it hasn't advanced in a while, but it's still fully supported, up-to-date, 64-bit compatible uh, or already. Um, It's really cool. I love that. You know what's funny? I remember PopCare, but I don't know that I've ever spoken about it with anybody in my life because (laughs) in my mind, I've always said it PopChar, even though I knew- Oh, my God. I don't know. I've never even said though, that loud before. Even though I've, I knew that the char stood for character, I've always. <laughs> I think that it wasn't Pascal that used to have a char character type, like to yeah, the yeah. hold one letter. And yeah. I always thought of it as char, even though I knew it stood for character, just because it made it, it, it it's what I wanted to type. I, I think know. we said it char because if you said it was, if you said car no one knew what you were saying yeah, right so right it was unambiguous it. Oh, to, to pronounce it as char i think so, i called it pop care now that you say that wait pop I, care I, pop chair 
Pop chart. I don't know. It's funny. I don't think I've ever said it aloud. Yeah. Um, I Pop used chart. it back in the Quark Express days when I was doing a lot of page layout. Right. Pop car was the most amazing thing. And over time, I need it less because I don't have a specialized uh, a need. But what an incredible thing that this yeah. person has done. Um, and there's other stuff like suitcases still developed, but not by the same people. Uh, you know, it's gone through different hands. And there's just – it's it shows yeah. how much the community is committed to these developers, not how much the developers are committed to what they've been doing. And you know, yeah. sometimes products get Sherlocked or they um, lose their necessity, but uh, it's really, what a great thing. Yeah, it really is. Anyway, I will, <laughs> I swear I'm going to link to it on Daring Firewall, but I will also <laughs> include it in the show notes. And then last but not least, as we wrap up, you are in the midst. I think we got about a week, a week out. <laughs> about a week out, I know. All right, well, that's part. good. This is the time to hit. This is the time to hit it. We're going to, we're going to, this episode should drop tomorrow. We'll have six days left, but you've got a Kickstarter going on. You've done a couple. You did a Kickstarter a year ago, two years ago for the letterpress book. I've been kind of doing them little by little. I've been, I, I've done, what have I done now? I've done seven and five have funded. My last five in a row have funded. The, and it's not like I broke the code, but I did one for a letterpress book in 2017 when I had a design residency, which right. I essentially funded the cost. I did an edition of that, and, and thank you for your participation in that. So now you have a copy now. It is one of uh, the nicest – I mean this not just because you're a guest on my show. It is one of the nicest books I own. It is it is an artifact. And, and, and to me, as we rocket forward into an ever more digital future and I spend so much more time reading stuff on screens, having an actual – I, I, that's the only word I can think of. Uh, th- making an actual printed book more of an artifact and something that appeals to senses other than your sight, you know, just the feel of it is, is uh, it's always been a nice thing. And I've always been obsessed with books, obviously not to your degree, <laughs> but, but more. I've always been obsessed with printed books and printing technology, but it's, it's really one of the nicest things that I own. I, I just oh, it sunk so much. It's, and it was, you know, it was a massive amount of effort because I printed it on a essentially manual letterpress. The, yeah. the inking thing was motorized and that, so 2017, I had this residency and I, I printed the book, I, you know, I designed the book is digitally designed output to plastic rubbery plates that are then printed on letterpress was this whole melding of old and new. And that year I went to the uh, Hamilton Wood Type and Printing Museum in Two Rivers, Wisconsin, uh, north of Milwaukee on the lake uh, for their Waze Goose, their annual uh, confab where letterpress printers and and type designers from all over the world come and had this great time uh, at the end of the year, had this incredible year. And then this thing came up where Monotype calls me and says, you know, we're doing a revival of five typefaces by Bertold Volpe, who is – who died in 1989, who is my favorite type designer in the world. Really? And I'm like, yeah, it was just this coincidence. They had no idea I had any interest. Do you want to write about it? Oh, and by the way, we have an exhibition we're underwriting in London of his papers and the original. And I'm like, Lynn, my wife, Lynn, how would you feel if I went to London to a type exhibition? She's like, you go, go. And I wound up (laughs) coming up with a book idea and going to London and going to the exhibition and going to two type museums there that are barely open to the public. And I wrote a book called London Kerning about those museums and sort of London type history. And that fed into this wacky thing I'm doing right now. Um, so in the last two years, I've gone to four different type and printing museums, two in London, one in Portland, Oregon, and this one in Wisconsin. And I've created this project called the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule. This is my latest Kickstarter, and it's it's basically like a little museum with genuine um, 
type artifacts. So it'll have metal type and wood type. It'll have some of the molds used to make hot metal. Uh, you'll be able to get a linotype slug. So a metal slug set on the old hot type settings, hot metal type setting system used mostly by newspapers with your custom text. I'm doing a small letterpress printed book that I am not printing by hand, uh, that if it raises enough money, I'll be able to have that set in hot metal and printed in linotype, uh, probably in England with people I met on this last trip. And um, the idea is that I had this thought of like, there, there are a bunch of type museums around the world. Many of them are sort of, they're not open very much or they're teetering Financially, very few are well-funded. Some are funded by the state in, in Europe uh, or by uh, – there's a place called Tipoteca in Italy that's funded by this family of printers for the printers for generations. And they've poured an incredible amount of money into this institution. I would love to go there. It's, uh, I think, near Venice. Um, but so this is a museum that you can own and hold that has actual – pieces of type and printing history in it and um you get you as a as a backer of the kickstarter get your own personal tiny type museum that's yeah that's, that's the, the that's the gimmick because i was thinking i was thinking i should i had this thought after going to all these museums i'm like you know none of them are nearby i wish i had some resources <laughs> myself maybe i should make a little museum for myself i'm like no 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 i should make a museum for other people and so I have a friend who's a woodworker. She's taking cabinetry courses now, but she already is a fine woodworker, and she's kind of honing all her skills. And she and I talk about this. She's also a letterpress printer, and she worked at Glowforge, which is the 2D laser cutter company that's here in Seattle, a friend of mine founded. And uh, and so we're talking about this, and, she, and I'm like, you know, I could, you could make a box, and I could do huh. – so she's designed a prototype, and she's going to make these beautiful hand-joined – boxes that are going to last for centuries, like a little beautiful piece of woodworking with drawers. The book is going to slide into a slot in the case. We're going to hide something in the case too. We're still working out the details. There will be something hidden in secret in each case as well. And then there'll be two drawers. One will have sort of flat things and the other will have uh, metal and other objects. And um, it's exciting. I, I sent an email to Eric Speakerman about it, who's like one of the greatest designers in the world. He's like, this is very exciting. How can I help you? I'm like, oh my, you know, it's like, all right, I had I'd interviewed him and, you know, have kind of correspondence with him. He's like, let me send you some stuff. So I have some, <laughs> some metal he sent me. He's like, we could print a postcard, letterpress studio in Berlin. And um, so there's various people who really want to be involved in it too, because it's partly a way to, uh, I mean, the time capsule aspect is like, I'm not trying to make it a conceit. It's right. really, each of these things will really be a preservation of history. So if you, you know, you can use it as a teaching tool, as your own thing, but even in like 100, 200, 500 years, the things inside are not going to degrade. The metal will not melt. The wood is all hard, aged, seasoned stuff that's used for wood type. So, and the, and the books can be printed on, you know, acid-free paper, everything's going to be whatever. So this thing is, I mean... I wish I'd be here in 500 years to see it, but but I really am thinking about it in that way that it's like both has present utility, but it but it will be a way to send you know send a gift to the future too. Uh, Eric Speakerman, at, I don't even know where you start. But <laughs> I know. He he, uh, he has a new book. I forget who he did it with. I have it. Uh, Does he have a new who, book? How do uh, I not know that? Didn't the, with the guy who co-founded Wired Magazine, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He did this thing. What he, what I'm going to get from him as well is, uh, this is a, a story I wrote for uh, in uh, late 2017. Is is when I met him. Is I, t I we did a Skype interview about it. He has developed a hybrid digital letterpress approach. And he calls it digital letterpress. Yeah. He figured out he's invested 
like uh, 60,000 euros into adapting a machine that makes plates for uh, mostly for package printing called a uh, flexography. And these plates, these rubbery plates are exactly the kind of thing I use for my book project as well. But he wanted to be able to engrave, basically to, to laser cut an entire like eight up printed uh, sheet at once. So you could print eight pages of a book at one time on a larger press. And he's put all this money into it and he developed it. So is uh, Louis Rossetto. Uh, That's it. book's called Change is Good. Yeah. And they did a Kickstarter and uh, I've got a copy of it. It's amazing. I do too. Uh, and I haven't read it, but I have, I have it. And I know, it's, it's, it's in my, I've looked through it. It's it is in my giant pile of books to read. So it's letterpress printed, but right. it's, it's, it, he's made it the most, he's take, made it the most easy way to go from, uh, from digital into letterpress that has ever existed because right. you can image these big sheets at once and they printed it on an old letterpress that's beautifully maintained that can print at high <sighs> speed. Right. And it's, you know, it is the best of both worlds because, Oh my God. Digital design is better than laying out metal type by hand. Not better, but it is certainly faster well, and, and, and have, more flexible. And yeah, you we don't, don't have the time. We nobody the time. wants to give up the incredible efficiency of digital design. But on the other hand, the actual printed output of letterpress, it just cannot be beaten. It is, you know, it is visceral. It's beautiful. It, it, it's everything you want it to be. So it, it truly is a combination of, of you know, you, you get, you get this superior output without sacrificing the incredible efficiency of the creative process doing it digitally. No, it's really, it's amazing. It could only be done in like, well, he started in 2017 or 2016 on it and he's done books for Surkamp and uh, other publishers too. And, but so the museum I make, every museum is going to have samples of printing in it. So it'll have the artifacts that are used for printing. And I've got, I've got all – it's amazing. I may put a small font of type in so it will actually have individual small uh, type characters. There's a there's a foundry founded in 19 – was it 15 in San Francisco? It's still in operation. There's uh, this, this uh, couple called the Bixlers in upstate New York and uh, Skinny Atlees that have been running a foundry for decades. Uh, Ed Tufte's books, his original series, I think of four books, were set in hot metal by the Bixlers because – even though digital type existed, Tufty did not like it right. <laughs> at that time. Right. Well, he wanted um, to use Bembo, and Bembo mm. was one of the typefaces that its translation to digital was. I'm just stealing this all from Dean Allen's great late write up of these no, great you're faces. So right. But Bembo really was, it, it, its digital translation was criminally bad. Because uh, yeah, there's better versions now. It was terrible at the time. Basically, it was done in a robotic fashion. Where here's the metal. Let's take precise measurements. We'll make a digital version that is exactly like this. And it, it when you used it, it, it came out way too spindly. I don't know what other adjective to do. It was too thin and spindly and fragile. Whereas Bembo is this sturdy sturdy text type and it's because what they should have been looking at is what does what did the metal bembo look like on paper not what did it look absolutely. like absolutely well not what did it look like it, it it's actually a great case study for the way to do a digital translation you know right where where in in a certain sense what they did was more accurate because they were accurately modeling the shape of the the letters on the metal but in practice, it was it was a tragedy because what actually came out of your laser printer when you used the digital version of Bembo was was not good, well, <laughs> and so that's why. The, yeah. So, but in the meantime, Tufty has commissioned uh, a 
ET Bembo, a digital version of Bembo that actually is good. That, yeah, right. Yeah. So he went from metal to his own version, but there was, there was this era, the phototype era, and a lot of type was redrawn for phototype, which had its own parameters. Right. So when they went to digital, they would take the large drawings for phototype and just scan those. <laughs> this is the whole thing. The monotype, the, the Bertolt Volpe face, Albertus is the oh. best known of his faces. Okay. Yeah, right. Using the prisoner and a bunch of other places. The version of Albertus that monotype sold for 30 years is kind of terrible because it was taken from phototype. And and there's a, a younger designer's guy, Toshio Magari, who's become a friend. So as a result of these books, uh, Toshi has become a friend of mine. W- uh, Volpe's youngest son, uh, Toby, is a, a technology editor in Europe. <laughs> and he and I are friends now. Um, it's an amazing thing to have done that London project. And so Toshi uh, reinterpreted and redrew these five different faces, including Albertus, so that they were actually designed for modern you know, typesetting and printing. And they're just, I mean, you'll, it, he went back to the original brass uh, uh, patterns used by monotype to cut the metal and then to Volpe's original uh, hand drawings done for monotype for this. And so they're not just slavish to the original, but they're informed by Volpe's own hand and the interpretation. And anyway, so part of what I, I mean, this is part of the thing is I'm going to include Little bits and pieces of that whole era. So like the pre-hot metal era, I'll uh, include some letterpress examples, uh, digital letterpress. We've got some examples from from uh, Speakerman to include. Um, Rich Kegler, who runs P22 Type Foundry, has got a bunch of stuff that we're going to get from him, um, from some from the digital era. And uh, he's offered – I'm going to include uh, really two, at least two films in it also in digital form, uh, Making Faces – about a metal type designer and uh, graphic means. That's about the uh, the phototype era. So, th- yeah. Anyway, I want to make something that's like really. <laughs> you want to take everything out and hold it in your hand and look at it, and uh, and we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's getting cl- it's getting close. It's about two thirds funded as we uh, talk with a week left, and that's All how right. Kickstarters go. Well, let's make it let's make it work, and people can find out more at uh, tinytypemuseum.com. Right. Yes. Yeah. It will redirect to the Kickstarter campaign, and then after the campaign, it will right. have its own own thing. But right. uh, tinytypemuseum dot com. Let's make this. Let's get this funded. I I, I say you're going to hit. I think you're going to make it. You're going to. It's as I usual so with many, your as usual with yours though. It's going to be right down to the wire. That's that's my trademark. The 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 last <laughs> I did a, a podcast crowdfunding, and it funded with 15 seconds to go. Uh, <laughs> Last year. It was great. But the the thing is, here's the deal. I've had so many amazing conversations with people, design educators and designers and letterpress people and people like my father, where my mother was a typesetter for 50 years. It has been such a like glorious emotional experience. So I'm, I'll be happy when I can actually make the thing. But wow. I mean, this is what's great. And you, and you know this from your interest and love of design and type is that it's not just about the way something looks. There's this incredible emotional experience around it. And being part of that is always exciting to me. And whenever I can get back to it, I just am so happy to to step a little bit away from the digital side and back into that kind of – or I should say from the, the non-aesthetic side and into the digital design and analog design side. Mm. Well, I, 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 I'm glad you're doing it. And I can't wait to see it. Well, thank um, you very much. Let's wrap it up. Let me thank our sponsors for the week. Eero at uh, Eero.com slash the talk show, Wi-Fi that works. Molecule, the only air purifier that actually destroys pollutants. They're at uh, Molecule with a K dot com. And uh, code for them is talk show. And Casper, 
Great mattresses, great sleep stuff. 50 bucks off with code TALKSHOW. And Tiny Tight Museum, Glenn's Kickstarter, which is <laughs> probably, as you listen to this, six days or less before it goes up. Uh, let's make it happen. Glenn, thank you for the time. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Our interests overlap and to a degree that is almost frightening. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, it's BB, always a nice to talk to you about all BB of this. BB edit stuff. old Mac apps and... <laughs> Letterpress type setting. Bembo. 